When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. This is Jared Halverson, and we have made it through all the big books of the Old Testament. Uh, hard to believe, but from here on out, it's, I can't say smooth sailing because there's still some rough waters ahead. There's a lot of interesting and difficult passages uh, that we'll need to unpack, but they're all in shorter books. And so if you were able to survive 66 chapters of Isaiah and 52 chapters of Jeremiah and Whew, 48 chapters of Ezekiel in one week last week. Then this week we have oh, a pittance with only 12 chapters from Daniel. Come on, Daniel, you could have given us more than that. Well, we still have our work cut out for us because the first half of Daniel is the half people know. We get amazing stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We get Daniel in the lion's den. But there is the second half of Daniel seems to be the sealed portion of the book, as far as most of us are concerned. It's mostly apocalyptic with these visions of the last days and strange beasts and what on earth are they supposed to represent? I don't know. So we're going to skip that second half and just cut it short. No, I'm kidding. We're going to do it all. Okay. And I really do hope that it will be a blessing to you from start to finish because this little book is... I mean, I mentioned last week that the book of Revelation, John draws upon a lot of imagery from Ezekiel. He draws on imagery from Daniel as well. Uh, you'll see Daniel running through portions of the Doctrine and Covenants. Daniel had his eye on the last days, uh, and so he had uh, his eye on us. And so we need to return the favor and have our eyes on him. In fact, you could say the same about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those three major prophets lived at incredibly tense time periods, the end of days as far as their nation was concerned. For, uh, for Isaiah, it was the end of the northern kingdom and Assyria was bearing down on them. For Jeremiah, it was the end of the southern kingdom and Babylon was on its way. Ezekiel got carried off captive to Babylon with that first wave. And Daniel, similar story. Uh, meanwhile, why does it apply to us? Because we have the wicked world bearing down on us as well. And just like they came right at the time of the end, here we live in the latter days, trying to prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing all of these prophets can tell us, it's how to live when you're up against a wicked world. In some ways, it's how to maintain true discipleship when you're living in enemy territory. It's how to hold on to the fruit of the tree of life when you're stuck living in the great and spacious building. It's not just over there across the river anymore. Here we are, living in Egypt, or Sodom and Gomorrah, or Assyria, or Idumea, or Babylon. Pick your metaphor from the Old Testament. But all of them are trying to point us forward to our own day, where we are surrounded by spiritual Babylon, trying to... In fact, there's an interesting evangelical scholar that wrote a book about, being, about living in exile in digital Babylon. It was really interesting that because of the way... Uh, electronics and technology have, have expanded our horizons, well, they have brought Babylon right into our Zion-like homes. 
there. I, I was going to say they're the click of a, a mouse click away, but you don't even. Who needs a mouse click? They're right there in our hands on our phones. We bring in Babylon. We fit Babylon in our pocket, and we have to learn how to be in this world and somehow maintain our sense of distance from it. Uh, I am grateful for people like Daniel who give us such an amazing example of how to do it well. Uh, because here they are, not just in Babylon like Ezekiel was last week, but in the courts of Babylon itself. High places and yet dangerous places, perilous times. And so they're speaking to our day. I will say too, as we begin to, to turn towards Daniel chapter 1, uh, if you remember when I talked about the Assyrian Empire coming down upon the northern kingdom and scattering them, if you're going to run the world, you better have a game plan on how to do it. And the Assyrians was to shuffle the deck or to play 52-card pickup. Remember we talked about that? And so to take, uh, uproot people, take them from their homeland, put them into other areas of the empire, and then move in other uh, conquered peoples into that. Mix them around. Uh, that's where the Samaritans come from. And so you have a diluted sense of of connection to the place where you happen to live. Well, uh, if, that, if the Assyrian game plan then is to leave you feeling like a stranger in the world you find yourself in, Babylon was in some ways the opposite of, no, we want you to feel really, really welcome here. We want you to feel not only that you fit into our world, but that it's your world too. In fact, if I could create, if I can invent a, a verb, the verb would be to Babylonify. And that's what they're trying to do. Assyria was just scattered. But Babylon, if we bring the best of the best, the highest potential, and bring them back to Babylon and then wind them and dine them, we'll see that in chapter 1. Uh, let them listen to our music, we'll see that in chapter 3. Uh, tell them our stories, that's chapter 2. Uh, show them our glory, that runs throughout. Uh, if we can convince them that being Babylonian is the best possible approach, then what are they going? They're not even. They're not going to want to escape because they don't feel trapped here. If we can captivate them in such a way they don't feel like they're captives, <laughs> talk about oh, willing prisoners. They won't want to leave. And sadly, like we saw when we studied the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which chronologically would come after Daniel, they some went home. But most tended to stay in Babylon where they'd been Babylonified. That's tragic. And so as we live in enemy territory, as we raise our children or grandchildren in enemy territory, how do we maintain our, our Zion credentials? How do we maintain allegiance to mother number one, Zion? Well, we live with stepmother number two, Babylon. Well, look no further than Daniel. He'll teach us how. So if you go to chapter 1 and start in verse 1, here we see the historical context. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. This is that first of three waves of, attack, of attacks and deportations. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So we're still seeing the hand of God in our trials. The Lord used the Assyrians as his axe, as his saw against the northern kingdom. And now he's using Babylon uh, to, to offer some redemptive turbulence to the south. He came with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. If we can take things from the God of Israel and 
oh, induct them in to the, to the temples of Babylon, then maybe people can still think that they're worshiping their God in this foreign land. Little do they, do they know that, that their views of God have changed in the meantime as well. But here they are. Yeah, now notice who the, who the target is on. The crosshairs are not just across everyone. Remember, uh, they left the poorest of the people back in Jerusalem when Jeremiah stayed, uh, stayed behind. That means who do they bring with them? Look at three and four and see if this applies to you or those you love. The king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel. Now, who are we looking for? And of the king's seed and of the princes, so people of high potential, leadership possibilities, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now, this is more than some mere foreign exchange student program. Uh, this, this is, <laughs> there's a lot more writing on this. And like I said, if the plan is to Babylonify them, let's take the kids with greatest potential to make a difference back at home. And if we can bring them here and have, have them forget about home, then chances are the poor that we've left behind, they might not like growing up under the Babylonian thumb, but they won't know how to get out from underneath it. Their would-be saviors have been tainted and have become such that they, again, they don't even sense their own captivity. The list is fascinating, well-favored, no blemish. These are the pure. They're skillful in wisdom and cunning in knowledge. They, they get it. They can, and notice what they said at the end. I have a feeling those are the type that will be able to learn the Babylonian tongue, the Chaldean language. And if we take that symbolically, can they speak worldly? Can they speak in such a way? Can we convince them to learn our way of doing things? in such a way that they forget the ways of the Lord. That's the game plan here. And so how are we going to do this in our, gener in our day as we see, especially the way that seculariz secularism is spreading its, its tendrils in all directions? And who is it affecting most? It's affecting the young. The rising generation is the least religious. We've had a we haven't had a, a generation this irreligious in a long, long time. And so how do we help them? And particularly as I work with people that are struggling in their faith, so often I'll meet a wonderful mother or a concerned father. And often when they're describing their child that has struggled in the faith, they'll say, oh, they're just, they're so intellectual or they're just so, so smart. And I just worry that they're overthinking or they're out thinking, they're thinking themselves out of faith. They think it's beneath them. And again, we look here in Daniel chapter 1, sounds like they're skillful in wisdom and cunning and knowledge. And if you think that faith is beneath you, if you think that it's, well, I'll admit that it's non-rational in part. There's a, a, a part for God speaks to the mind and the heart. So yes, there is a rational leg that we stand on. There's the head. But there's a non-rational. There's the heart. But if, the, if Babylon can convince you that the non-rational is downright irrational, then those that are cunning in knowledge and understand science, but aren't so good with social science, 
uh, or aren't so good. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. There are some that are incredible when it comes to studying the stomach of a spider, but they're pretty pathetic at studying the heart of a human being. And so if we are open to the humanities and not just the sciences, then we might have room for the divinities as well. Well, that, those seem to be the type that Babylon is most eager to bring in their direction. And sadly, the kingdom of God loses people of such great potential. Thankfully, we also hold on to people of incredible potential too. Uh, and they build the kingdom in, in magnificent ways. But keep that in mind as far as the target audience. If you've ever felt the adversary picking on you personally, take it as a compliment. He sees you as a Daniel. He sees you as an Esther. He see, she's around the same time period, similar story. Okay? Daniel is the, the, Esther is the female equivalent of Daniel. Uh, both of them are, are, are later equivalents of Joseph of Egypt. Think about it. We have so many stories in the Old Testament about people growing up in enemy territory. This is just the latest of, of quite a few. But let's keep reading. Verse 5, here's the next plan. We're going to bring them in. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. So nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now, think about daily provision and doing that for three years. What do they say? It takes like 21 days to form a habit? Well, how about three years worth? What would a thousand days, give or take, mean to you? And if it was your daily provision, your daily dosage, if the first thing you reach for when you wake up in the morning is your phone and you start scrolling, if you spend hours in social media rather than in spiritual truth, if Hollywood is, is giving you your marching orders, and that's where, if that is your daily provision, well, think about this, you are what you eat, right? And if it's the king's meat, but it's the king of this world, Satan calls himself the god of this world. If that's who's, who's whipping up dinner, if it's wine and not the sacramental type, and if day after day after day for years, how can it not affect us? When people say, oh no, it's, it, well, people are immune to that. They still make up their mind. They make their own choices. Tell that to the advertising industry. And when companies will spend millions on some 30-second ad, thinking that in 30 seconds I can affect your behavior, change your beliefs, uh, alter your allegiances, well, three years of daily provision, yeah, I think that would do it. Now, in verse 6 and 7, among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, it is, but that's not their original names. If you keep reading, we see their new names. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Now, this part amazes me. And we talked a little bit about this when we met Esther, since Esther was not her name either. Her name was Hadassah, a wonderful Hebrew name. Well, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah are all wonderful Hebrew names as well. Especially noticing this. Uh, we have seen so many prophets that have an E-L in their name, or an I-A-H, or a J-A-H. Uh, L is short for Elohim, 
and Yah is short for Jehovah. So you get somebody like an Elijah that has both, best of both worlds. El-E-Yah, Jehovah, Jehovah is my God, working backwards. Well, listen to their names again. Daniel, Elohim. Every time he hears his name, he thinks of God. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Four for four, they were raised bearing the name of the God of Israel. So no wonder that's got to go. In our process of Babylonification, we have to stop you from thinking about God every time your name is raised. More than that, we have to change your sense of identity. If we can somehow convince you you no longer are a child of God, but you're a child of the world, because according to scholars, names like Belteshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are plays off of Babylonian deity. Let's name you after our gods instead of your God. Let's have you thinking our ways instead of your ways. And if we can drill that into you to the point that you have some other identity that trumps your true identity. President Nelson just gave a talk about this very concept, what, what your true identities really are. And who was his target audience? The rising generation. To young adults, you have so many identities, and that's wonderful. But don't let lesser ones trump the most important ones of all, the ones that remind you that you're a child of God. If, if you recall Esther sounding like Ishtar, Persian deity, Mordecai sounding like Marduk, Persian deity, we're seeing similar things here. In my seminary classes, I used to always talk about, okay, we're talking about these three guys. I can never remember their names. Uh, they're the ones that get thrown in the fiery furnace, and everybody just whips it out. Well, easy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, it's these other guys, these other ones. They were in, off in Babylon, carried captive. Um, good friend of Daniel. Come on, you guys know this. You've seen the veggie tale. And they're like, duh, yeah, we have. Uh, Shadrach and Benny, right? It's, it's, it's uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm like, no, nah, those ring a bell, but I don't think that's them. And they get so frustrated until I finally smile and confess, you're right, but really you're wrong. Let's talk about Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Let's remind ourselves of who they really are. And somehow Belteshazzar never seemed to stick. Daniel lived inside, and I'm not saying anything negative about his three friends, but somehow Daniel was such that, yeah, give me a new name. The world is still going to know me by Daniel. I love that. Now in verse 8, we'll get a glimpse into Daniel's heart. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Here is intentionality. Here is, is a focused effort. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, that is, consequently, or because of the fact that he had purposed in his heart, because he decided in advance and was determined to follow through, therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs, and that's an important detail as well. Like I said, he must have decided in advance, he purposed in his heart, he was determined not to lower his standards just because his circumstances had changed. If I was back in Israel, I, I wouldn't be eating Babylonian things. And even though I'm here in Babylon, 
I'm still not going to lower myself to that level. This is a version of his word of wisdom, okay? Kosher laws and so forth. And what I love about this is that he requested of the prince of the eunuchs. And request is a different sense or feeling than demand. If Daniel was the type, because here's our problem. Remember, we're trying to prove contraries as usual. And we're trying to strike a proper balance of keeping the first great commandment and honoring God, but also the second great commandment and loving our neighbor. We're trying to be good saints and good neighbors, good citizens. That's a tough combination. And I think sometimes in our zeal to stick to our standards, we make demands on people around us that puts us and our standards in a bad light that we're now forcing our standards on everyone else, when really we're just trying to keep them from forcing their standards or lack thereof upon us. That's why I love the, the combination of him simply requesting. It's like, you know, um, I don't know how much you know about our, the way we were raised, uh, chief of the eunuchs, but if there's any other options on the menu besides what you're presenting, I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to rock the boat. I'm not trying to to shame you or call you out for anything. No, you, you have your standards. We can agree to disagree on this. But I, I'm just wondering if there's any wiggle room, uh, if your tolerance is big enough to tolerate uh, my, my view on things or the standards that I'm trying to keep. If, if that's possible, I'd be so grateful. And meanwhile, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love. I actually wonder if those two are more closely related than, than just God stepping in and performing a miracle. He can definitely do that. He can affect the way the, this prince of the eunuchs looks at Daniel and just cut him some slack. But I also wonder if it's the personality type of Daniel, the type that simply makes requests rather than demands. Because it's a lot easier to honor a humble request than feel like you're being coerced to meet a, a, a down, an outright demand, if that makes sense. I think we can do a better job with that ourselves in terms of being good neighbors, uh, especially if we live in a place where we are not the majority. Well, because of all of this, he's he, perhaps part of it is attitude, part of it's the miracles of God. He has ingratiated himself into the, into the feelings of his, of his master. And in verse 10, the prince of the eunuchs says to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. See, and again, that's probably one of the reasons that Daniel just made the request rather than demand, because perhaps he perceived I really do think this eunuch is a good guy. He's, he's really kind to us. I mean, in some ways, he's at the margins of Babylonian society, just like we are. And if we can honor him, try to recognize the job he's trying to do, perhaps not, against, not by his choice, maybe against his will. Well, I'm not trying to make it hard on you in my requests for you to make it easy on us. And, and again, so he's concerned about that. If it's going to be off with my head if you look like you're in worse shape than the rest of everyone else. And there's actually something else to think about there. What was his assumption? If you follow your standards, then your faces will, will obviously be worse liking than everybody else. That's an interesting irony in the world as well. 
they look at people that are living standards and think they must be unhappy. They must feel trapped. Uh, these poor Latter-day Saint women that are, that are so uh, under the thumb of the patriarchy uh, or these youth that just are so confined by, by authoritarian parents that are forcing them to live all these standards against their will. Whereas there are so many sisters in the church that realize that priesthood power is theirs as well as their husbands or fathers or brothers. There are so many youth that grow up feeling gratitude for the safety of their sanctuary of standards. As a kid, I never felt repressed. Uh, I, I was grateful for the word of wisdom and the law of chastity. I was grateful for a supportive community and I felt safe in, this, in the sanctuary of standards. I really did. Within the confines of covenant. They weren't too confining for me. And we somehow have to help people know, I, I choose this. It really is the happiest way to live. So don't feel bad for me my face is no worse liking. Well, it might be for other reasons, but not because of my standards, okay? So notice what happens next. Because this wasn't Daniel's perception, my covenants do not put me into, into harm's way. They're actually a blessing to me. He therefore responds with these words, verse 12 and 13. Prove thy servants, I beseech thee. Ten days, that's all we ask. Let them give us pulse to eat, some kind of maybe mush of grain or fruits or vegetables, some, some kosher, good word of wisdom. Let's not have meat. Let's not have wine. Let's just give us water to drink along with this pulse. And then, after the ten days, let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. Oh, talk about openness. And talk about cunning in science? Yeah, uh, this, that's a good experiment. We'll, we'll, you'll have your group that's going to, I mean, there's, if that's your control group and everyone's going to be eating the same thing, great. Then just separate us out as the object of experimentation. And let us take our, our pulse and water and see after 10 days if there's any difference. If indeed we are, our faces are worse liking, I'll tell you what. We'll eat whatever else you want us to eat. We'll go your direction. But I'm confident enough in the results of our experiment. Let's just wait and see. And again, I am impressed that they let 10 days pass. Long enough to digest some, a meal or two. Okay, Long enough for a, a difference in lifestyle to at least begin to be visible. If it was, we'll just eat ours and let them eat theirs and let's see it tomorrow. See, here's the thing. I have had students over the years occasionally come to me and say, you know, I've grown up in the church. It's all I ever know. I don't really know what life will be like outside. And so I want to, give, I want to try the experiment. Huh. Alma said to experiment on the word. They wanted to experiment away from the word. Okay. Uh, I see where you're coming from. Uh, but one young man that was dead set on it, uh, he said, I'm not, going, I'm not leaving the church. I'm just going on sabbatical to just see if I'll even miss it. I don't know. And I said, okay, if you're dead set on that, let me just encourage you to make a real experiment out of it, which would mean to, to run the experiment in different conditions. You see, if you're trying to decide how much good a coat will do, but you're only wearing it in 70 degree weather, yeah, take it off, you'll probably be just fine. 
You might want to run the experiment, however, when conditions are ad of, of adverse. And if you take your coat off in <laughs> zero degree temperatures, you'll feel a difference. Uh, so I said to him, if you're planning on leaving the church, I, I would just suggest you stay away long enough to include the hard times. Because then you might actually miss a supportive covenant community. Then you might wonder if it was better to have God on your side. Uh, this, the experiment was going to be long enough to see all of that. Well, that seemed pr a pretty good <laughs> set of conditions as far as the eunuch was concerned. And so in verse 14 through 16, he consented to them in this matter and proved them 10 days. And at the, the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. That might not sound good to us, at least not the fatter part, but it was evidence of, of plenty of nutrition as far as they were concerned. So thus Melzar, who's this eunuch, took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. I mean, honestly, to those enamored with science, why not accept the data? For example, the data that shows the positive effects of religion on mental health. Or the positive data that Latter-day Saints, on average, live, have a considerably longer life expectancy than the general population. Now, I'll take that evidence as far as Word of Wisdom is concerned uh, and, and what healthy living can do for you. That was the case with this eunuch. And he honored Again, I'm living in enemy territory, but holding to Zion-like standards. And they're making a difference in my life. Not only do I feel and know that, but others around me can tell a difference as well. That was the case with Daniel. And that's not all. Verse 17. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, I would say this goes beyond just the, oh, the minimum standards of admission that we saw at the beginning of the chapter. I mean, yes, that's who the, the Babylonians were looking to, to captivate in, in the first place. But here, God is going beyond that and blessing them directly. And how could that not be related to their desire to honor his commandments, no matter where they lived? And so knowledge, skill, learning, wisdom, visions, dreams, that's going to come in handy, believe me. Chapter after chapter, as Daniel is, is put to the test on, are you able to interpret these dreams? And he was. In fact, if you think about the word of wisdom, and this chapter is a great one to cross-reference to Doctrine and Covenants 89. Yes, we talk about health in the navel and marrow in the bones. We talk about physical health as a benefit and blessing of the word of wisdom. But how does the chapter end, or section 89 end? Hidden treasures of knowledge, of wisdom. We do call it the word of wisdom, that is. And not just that it's wise to live this way, but if you live this way, you'll be more wise. You'll be in tune with the power of the Holy Ghost, and the Spirit will reveal truth to you in a way that you can't when, when the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's power here. And, and it's being manifest in the lives of these young men. That, honestly, those blessings, would make obedience to the word of wisdom worthwhile, even if it didn't affect your physical help, health at all. It does both, body and mind and spirit. Verse 18 through 20 then, Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, 
Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The three years of preparation must have passed. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. There's their real names, their true identities. Of course there's no one like them. They refuse to be Babylonified. They're holding on to their true identity as children of God. Therefore stood they before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Interesting that those in Babylon thought that Zion's standards would leave them worse liking. The opposite was true. It was the Babylonification that left people not better, but worse. I think there's, I'll put it this way, I think it's important to understand the difference between plundering the riches of Egypt and falling for Babylonian fare. When we talked about uh, the Israelites leaving Egypt and plundering their riches on their way out to, to take the, the gold and the silver, the earrings and the bracelets, and then the decision they had to make, are we going to turn it into a golden calf or are we going to turn it into tabernacle furnishings? Uh, to get the best education you can, for example. To learn from a wise world. Now, the, the, Babylon did have some incredible abilities oh, as far as architecture was concerned. Their wall construction was out of this world. The hanging gardens of Babylon were, was one of the ancient wonders. And so to learn those kinds of things, again, that, that part of the Babylonian language is good to know. Again, plundering the riches of Egypt can make a huge difference in Zion. But again, the difference is, what will you use those things for? And if it's simply to, to build up Babylon, or to, to remain behind in Egypt, then an Egyptian education did more harm than good. And Babylonian food left you worse rather than better. As I tell my college students, education is one of the greatest things that you can consecrate to God. And it changes how you approach your education and what you do with it after the fact. If we can do that with our professions, if we can do that with, with whatever Babylon has to offer that can be turned into a positive thing, then plunder Babylon just like you'd plunder Egypt. Just beware of golden calves. Finally, in verse 21, Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus, which is far, far into the future. He will live through the Babylonian reign. Remember, Jeremiah warned them, 70 years in Babylon, you'll be stuck there. Well, good thing Daniel was a youth when he was first carried captive because he's going to be there for the duration. He's there until Cyrus. He's gone from Babylonians through the Medes onto the Persians and Cyrus the Great, who's the one that allows the Jews to go back home. Uh, Daniel is alive to see that. And I think there's something powerful about that as well. To be able to endure your mortal captivity and do it well enough, no matter how long it takes, that you can see your journey home unfolding in a positive way. Yes, my, my mortal life was spent here, outside of Zion, here in enemy territory. But I know my return trip will be glorious. And so it would be for the Israelites. Ch chapter 2 of Daniel, another famous one. The, like I said, the first half of Daniel is so famous. Chapter 2 is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 
that only Daniel can interpret. And uh, again, you've got to be 10 times better than the rest to be able to figure this thing out. And we'll see why as it unfolds. Verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep brake from him. Okay, one of those nightmares that wakes you up in the middle of the night. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. We need all hands on deck for this one. To show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Now here he is, Nebuchadnezzar, troubled by what's been on his mind. Does that describe us ever? And who do we turn to? Who are our magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans? Not just when we dream dreams and want an interpretation. That seems we don't do that much anymore. But when our spirit is troubled, when things are weighing on us so heavily we can't seem to sleep, we often go to therapists and counselors, and we should. Those are wonderful helps, well-trained experts. But I hope we also include God and his prophets, as well as his closer servants. They can help us understand what is troubling our spirit as well. And again, not at the exclusion of professionals, if that is the degree that we need. But they don't have to be mutually exclusive. We will see in a moment that it is Daniel, not uh, a Babylonian astrologer, that is able to really make sense of things. And sometimes it takes someone with the gift of discernment, even more than a doctorate, to be able to see God's hand in the things that we're going through. Now in verse 4, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Yeah, we can handle that part. You just got to tell us what it was. And this is where the plot thickens. Verse 5 and 6, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, Aha, the thing is gone from me. Now, some other translations would, would render this, The thing is sure with me. And as we'll see in a moment, that's got to be the more accurate version. It's not that just, ah, forgot it, and I just can't. It's, it's at the tip of my tongue. You know how that is when you wake up in the morning. You know you had a dream, but you can't remember what it was. No, in this case, the king does know what it, what it was. It is sure with me. But he's not going to tell it to them, and here's why. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. We'll see that Nebuchadnezzar was kind of rash and had some anger management issues. Uh, so talk about jumping to, to not just conclusions, but jumping to condemnations and executions. Uh, that's what's going to happen to you if you can't do this. But if ye show the dream, first part, and the interpretation thereof, second part, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Now, they're in a pickle because we can give you an interpretation, but figuring out what you dreamed about in your sleep last night? Are you kidding? Nobody can do that. Well, that's kind of the point. It's actually fascinating as it goes forward because, again, they, they, they protest and they're like, again, we are happy to give you the interpretation. You just please supply the dream. And again, Nebuchadnezzar holds his ground and says, absolutely not. I will not tell you what my dream was. Verse 8 and 9, the king answered and said, I know of a certainty that you would gain the time. You're just, what are you, buying time? You're trying to stall on this? Is this a, some tactic to get me to spill, uh, spill the beans and tell you what I was dreaming about? Because you see the thing is gone from me, 
At least I'm pretending that that's the case. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. Now what's amazing about this, this shows the wisdom and cunning in knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar. Because if you really think about it, what's harder? Revelation or interpretation? They, the, the, the astrologers and the magicians, these wise men of Babylon, know that they cannot reveal. But they, they feel confident in their ability to interpret. But if you really think about it, can't anybody do that? I mean, especially if it's something, just explain the dreams. Like, well, this is non-disprovable. So I can kind of say anything. And as long as it kind of goes along with the same storyline as the dream, I mean, couldn't you do that? Couldn't I do that? Yeah, tell me a dream. Tell me a story. And I could probably come up with some, some meaning for it, no matter what it is. I, I can't prove to you that it's the true interpretation, though. Ooh, unless... Hmm, you see what, what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's mind? I want an accurate interpretation. I mean, he could probably come up with an interpretation himself, right? Why, what was I dreaming about? What does that mean? But it's not enough to just come up with an educated guess. I want an accurate interpretation of this. And how do, how do we even know? Hmm. Unless I ask, ah, this is perfect. If I ask them to do what no one can do, and they do it, then I'll be able to trust that they have the ability to do what anyone can do. Are you following me on this? No one can reveal. Anyone can interpret. So let's tie the two together. And if someone can show me they have the power of revelation, then that makes it clear they have the power of interpretation. In some ways, this reminds me of when they lower the man down through the roof with Jesus. Remember this? Uh, and Jesus looks at this paralyzed man on the bed and he says, to the surprise of all, be of good cheer, son, thy sins are forgiven. And he's probably going, thanks, that's not why I came. And the scribes and Pharisees in the corner are you know, murmuring under their breath, only God can do that. And Jesus reads those thoughts and says, which is easier? And that's a really interesting question. I don't think it was just rhetorical. Like seriously, which is easier? To say, thy sins are forgiven, or to say, take up thy bed and walk. Some, one way to answer that is, which one of these is, is falsifiable? Which one is disprovable? Because I can say that you're forgiven, and nobody can say that that didn't happen. No one can say that it did, but I, I, mean, I can just give you all blanket amnesty. Forgiveness for you all. I don't have the power to do that, but... Can you prove that I don't? Meanwhile, if this is a physical healing, and I say, take up thy bed and walk, and he can't do it, then that's falsifiable. That's disprovable. Ooh, that sounds really hard. The hard one here is the physical healing. And then Jesus says, but just so you know I can do the easy one, I'll do the hard one too. Son, take up thy bed and walk. And he does. I love that. I've done the hard. Can you trust that I did the easy? Nebuchadnezzar is setting up a similar challenge for his astrologers and magicians and wise men. 
Do the impossible, and I'll trust you when you do the possible. Now, as far as the genius behind that is concerned, can I say one other thing that, where this, I find incredible application here? I was in the middle of an interfaith dialogue with some wonderful evangelical friends. And it got down, as it so often does, to arguing over scripture. Uh, and it, it was, well, you interpret it this way, and we interpret it this way, and, and at the end of the day, we kind of have to agree to disagree. We both feel like, and this is true of Protestantism across the board, everybody feels like they're reading the Bible the, the correct way. But the fact that we don't agree with each other is really the scandal of Protestantism. Uh, when Martin Luther said, well we'll, we'll leave the Catholic hierarchy and Catholic priesthood, ours will be a priesthood of all believers and our authority will come from the Bible. Well, it, unfortunately, it was naive to think that everyone would see the same things on the same pages. And the vast array of Protestant denominations that are out there suggests that we do need some centralized interpretive authority. Or we'll end up doing what uh, Abraham Lincoln said in the second inaugural address, that both North and South, everybody reads the same Bible. They just don't agree on what it means. And so we were having this conversation between Latter-day Saints and Evangelical Christians, and it was wonderful just uh, sharing in these things. It wasn't contentious at all, thankfully. But as we were talking about that, and we all kind of came down to that realization, it's all about interpretation. That's all it is. Well, if you remember what Peter says in the New Testament, that Scripture isn't given to private interpretation. Scripture was given to holy men of God as they were moved upon by the Spirit of God. Hmm. So somehow Peter is associating interpretation of Scripture with revelation of Scripture. That it was received in the first place when holy servants of God were moved upon by God's Spirit. And if that's how it came in the first place, isn't that how it ought to be interpreted? In other words, the level of authority required for interpretation should be on par with the level of authority required for revelation. And as we were discussing that, and then I went to Peter, then my mind raced back to Daniel chapter 2. And I'd never put those two and twos together. I'd never connected those doctrinal dots before. But there were, open your mouth and it shall be filled. And we jumped from a real dilemma over biblical interpretation to that verse in Peter and then back to this vision in Daniel 2. And just talk to them about the need for the power to do the impossible, Revelation. And then I'll trust your power to do the possible, Interpretation. Amazing. I, I was grateful for that, that gift from the Spirit as I opened my mouth. Yeah, but I see it beautifully displayed here. Now, verse 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. This is impossible. And that was kind of the point all along, right? Therefore, there is no king, no lord, nor ruler that asked such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. What you're asking has never been asked before. It is a rare thing that the king requireth, they say. And there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Do you understand what they're saying? Only a god can do that. To which Nebuchadnezzar probably smiled and said, Exactly. 
if you're an astrologer, aren't you supposed to like tap into the knowledge of the gods? If you're a magician, if you're a wise man, then wise up and tap into that divine knowledge. That's exactly what I'm asking for. Who has access to God? Well, the king was furious. Yeah, I guess you guys are trying to buy some time. Uh, how's it going to feel like to live in a dunghill? <laughs> how's that? So he passes the sentence of death on all of his wise men. Now, through this exchange to this point, Daniel hasn't been present. Uh, he wasn't around to hear it, but he finds out about the decree and concern since I guess technically I'm one of the wise men too. That is that is my head on the chopping block as well. Verse 14, then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. The decree had already been passed. He's ready to go out and execute. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. So again, this shows some wisdom on Daniel's part. What's the point of such a hasty decision? We're going to see several of those uh, among these Babylonian leaders. But let's be, let's be a little more patient here. Let's think about things uh, rather than just off with their heads. So Daniel asks for precisely that, more time. Verse 16, Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time. And that he would show the king the interpretation. That's all I need. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. New Babylonian names still aren't sticking. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. That Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I love Daniel's approach here. If you are seeking answers... Uh, whether it's something you just don't know how to do, uh, whether it's guidance with a, a difficult decision, whether you're having a crisis of faith and it really feels like I'm not, I just don't know what I'm supposed, if any of this is true or where I should look for information and, and how to navigate these, these doubts and these concerns, that's a pretty good example to follow. Don't rush to a hasty decision. I've said to people sometimes, is there, is there a rush? Is there some kind of ultimatum you've, you've set for yourself or for God? Uh, you don't have to, uh, just because you don't feel like walking through the door at church right now, doesn't mean you have to lock it with you on the outside. Is there anything that would keep you from just slowly studying and learning and trying to come to an understanding of things? Take some time. Second thing he does Make the thing known to trusted advisors, trusted parents, trusted friends, trusted teachers. Who can I ask to counsel and advise me? Maybe people that find themselves in similar situations or have been and somehow made it out on the other side. Take your time. Let other people know what you're wrestling with. So often it can be horribly isolating and lonely to be in faith crisis or lonely to just think you're the only one who doesn't know how to do certain things and everybody else's their life seems to be going really really well and here i am clueless uh, you'd be surprised we're all a little clueless in some ways but to go find the uh, to have the vulnerability and humility to make it known and have them join you in desiring the mercies of the god of heaven his mercy which suggests 
This isn't something I deserve, which means it's not something I demand. This goes back to Daniel's personality in the first place, making requests of the leader of the eunuchs, not demands. And here making requests of God. In thy mercy, will you help me understand? We don't come to God in a sense of entitlement and demand that he explain himself. Why did you do it this way? How come this happened this way? Why aren't you... No, we simply ask God in humility. In thy mercy, will you please help me understand something that I can't figure out on my own? I'm turning to others horizontally for help. And here I am turning vertically for help as well. And, and whenever you choose to grant it to me, sooner or later, in it I shall rejoice. Be patient with God through it all. Then, based on that kind of openness, that kind of humility, Daniel got the answer he was seeking. And when he did, verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Again, you didn't owe this to me. I didn't, it wasn't out of justice that you responded. It was out of mercy. So thank you. Blessed art thou, for wisdom and might are his and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness. And the light dwelleth with him. I love those pronouns. Daniel knows that God deserves all the credit. It wasn't my wisdom. It wasn't my understanding. It wasn't my intelligence that made the difference. God knows. Nebuchadnezzar, you were right. No man could know this. Only God can. I'm just grateful I have access to that all-knowing and all-loving, all-revealing Father in heaven. His prayer of gratitude continues in verse 23. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, not the gods of the Babylonians, the God of my fathers, the ones buried back in Zion, who hast given me wisdom and might and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Again, crediting God all the way through. So Daniel runs back and tells the captain of the guard. And in verse 25, Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. Again, if he's been sent on an execution mission, we better do this quickly. He said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. I do worry a little about the way Arioch phrased it based on everything Daniel had just said. With Daniel, it was always the third person pronouns. He, 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 him. God is behind all of this. And what does Arioch say to the king? Look what I have done. I have found a man. Or maybe he's just trying to make some... <laughs> To, to appease the king. I, this is why it took so long. Okay? I, I haven't killed everyone like you, like you told me. Uh, I, I've got a better option. I found a solution here. So verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. We've got to keep reminding ourselves of that because that never seems to stick. Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Thou, can you really do this? And Daniel responds, 27, 
He answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. So they were right, and you were right. No mere mortal can do this. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. So this is one of the first of these apocalyptic visions, the last days, the latter days. What will come in the future? You, what you just had last night was no mere dream. It was a prophecy. And I'm here to interpret the prophecy. Thy dream, he says, and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And then he begins to explain it. But again, do we understand that God is a God who reveals secrets? That he wants to speak with us. He wants to communicate with his children. And, and that God can do what mere mortals cannot. And since that's all we are, mere mortals then how can we do anything above our natural capacity? Only by tapping into divine capacity. He will lift us out of our, our mortal shoes and set us on higher ground. He does it with Daniel here. Verse 29. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. Now notice all the second person pronouns. These are thy thoughts, thy mind, thy bed. God is speaking to you, not to me. He wanted to make known to thee what was about to happen. And that's really important. We saw this with Joseph and Pharaoh. Joseph's languishing in prison. And God doesn't speak to Joseph about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. What good would that have done? Some raving lunatic in the prison is talking about fat cows and, and skinny ones? Okay, whatever. No, the Pharaoh's going to have to have this dream. But to be given the dream without the interpretation, ah, that leaves an opening for Joseph to come in. And since Pharaoh's the one that's rocked by this dream that's just, I got to so, I, I make sense of this because it's weighing on me. Well, then he'll have the motivation to implement the dream that he's had once he understands what it's all about. You understand the genius here? In some ways, it's simply a matter of God following his own program as far as stewardships and accountabilities are concerned. That who's responsible for Egypt? Pharaoh, not Joseph. And who's responsible for Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar, not Daniel. So God gave you the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, because you're in charge. And I'm simply here to help you understand what message God was trying to convey. Really interesting that it would be this way. And again, we're seeing an, an Egyptian-Babylonian connection as far as the scripture stories are concerned. And that's important. Enemy territory, either time. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's part. And then Daniel says, But as for me, let's do some first-person pronouns now, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Daniel's humility again is on display. Not about me, not about my gifts, not about my wisdom. This is about them. That's a third person pronoun. All those wise men you were about to kill, hasty decision. Uh, this was, is going to save them. And then the other pronoun, second person, you, king. This is a blessing for you as well. 
Here is Daniel, instead of looking inward, he's looking outward. And he's doing that after having looked upward first. That's a good order. Next, verse 31 to 33. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. So he's beginning to reveal the dream. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Now compare the restoration being a marvelous work. This is an excellent one. Compare the church being terrible as an army with banners. Well, this image is terrible before the people, before Nebuchadnezzar as well. So are we seeing some parallels between the kingdom of God and what it is that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing here? Now, this image's head was of fine gold. No wonder it, the brightness was so excellent. His breast and his arms were of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Now are we seeing, kind of look at the top and then work your way down to the feet and we are seeing precious metals diminish in value as we descend. So we've gone from head to toe and in the process we've gone from gold to silver to brass to iron to clay. When it's an old saying, when we talk about feet of clay, this is where it's coming from. That at the end of the day, I might, I might think I'm all that in my, my head of gold. But when all is said and done, here I am stuck in the mire and I have feet of clay just like everyone else. But then notice what comes next. Verse 34 and 35. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands. Without hands. So don't picture a, a bunch of stonemasons with, with hammer and, and, and pickaxe trying to, to carve out stone from the bedrock. No, this comes, it cut, it's cut out. It was part of something bigger, but it, now it's cut out and you can't even tell how that happened. It was without hands, but it smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. It, it hit the part that was most human, most uh, that of least worth. But it didn't stop there. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, all the way up, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Cut out from a mountain on one end, became a great mountain on the other. Small, probably snowballing as it rolled down, big enough when it got to the, to the image to destroy it. I mean, to pulverize this thing. Chaff? Ooh, that's an interesting image. To think about wheat and chaff. The, to talk about a summer threshing floor. Hmm, summer, we're getting closer and closer to harvest time. He did say it was a vision for the last days. Threshing floor is where you separate wheat from chaff. Threshing floor is where they built the Temple of Solomon, the place of greatest differentiation of the, the sacred from the profane, like we saw last week in Ezekiel. A lot of amazing levels of, of imagery here. But the, the, the key is there's two things. There's the image and there's the stone. The image is obviously man-made. It looks like a man. The stone, oh, just rough, hewn, not even hewn, just rough, and it rolls forth. But as it rolls, it's stone against statue. And which one would you rather be? 
The stone might just be mere rock. It's not gold or silver. Well, it seems to be better than clay, though. And it is seem to be increasing rather than being decreased down to the dust. In some ways, you could ask, what side of that stone would you rather be on? Would you rather be behind it, pushing it forward, helping it gather speed as it rolls forth and becomes a mighty mountain and fills the earth? Or would you rather be on the front end of it, uh, joining the statue, ready, ready to, be, to be pulverized? In some ways, that's exactly the choice that Daniel and his three friends were making all the way back in chapter 1. Whose side will I be on? Stone or statue? Choice is ours. But having revealed the dream, I know that was only half of what you wanted, mighty king. But now that I've done the impossible, excuse me, now that God has done the impossible through me, then let's do the possible. And this way you'll know that my interpretation of your dream is true, that this will truly happen. He explains that each body part uh, with the, uh, made of its different metal uh, or substance will be a different kingdom upon the earth. So what you're looking at here is politics, Almighty King. I know that's an interesting subject for you. And the passing of one kingdom to the next. And good news for you, you're the head of gold. You're the mightiest out there, O mighty Nebuchadnezzar. And then each successive body part is a successive world superpower. So if Babylon is the head of gold, then the chest of silver is the following kingdom, which are the Persians. The Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire, so there's, that's the next body part. But it's mere silver compared to solid gold. After the Persians, who comes next? The Greeks. So the Greece would be the belly and thighs of brass, followed by the Roman Empire, which are the legs of iron. In verse 40, it says that the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Oh yes, the mighty Roman Empire seemed absolutely invincible during its heyday. And then notice verse 41 and 42. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, we're going to get even more specific here, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Now, one way to look at this is the Roman Empire ultimately was divided between West and East. Uh, you get uh, Byzantine East and Eastern Orthodoxy as far as religion is concerned. You get the Latin West and Roman Catholicism. Uh, there is this division. And as time goes on beyond that, we start to see this division into nation states uh, throughout Europe. Uh, you want to think about the ten toes that do have partake some of that ancient strength of the Holy Roman Empire. But also there's a weakness there. There's a division there. There's no more world superpower, really. Uh, throughout that, that medieval time period. Now, that, that's not the only possible interpretation here. There are some scholars that, that rather than go from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome and then divide it all up with European kingdoms, they want to limit it a little bit more and say, well, technically the Persian Empire was the Medes and the Persians. So what if those were separate? And that way we go from Babylon to Media to Persia to Greece.
and then it's Greece that is divided into two, and then those two split out into ten, and, and there's these feet of clay. Not bad. That's a possibility as well. Uh, after all, the, the, the Greek empire does split along, not, nor, not west and east like Latin, uh, like the Roman Empire, but north and south, the, the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. Those were some of Alexander the Great's generals, and they divided the kingdom and fought over it for, for years, centuries to come. But here's part of the challenge. Uh, on the one hand, it stops short of the Roman Empire where some really important things happen. Uh, in some ways, that's, I mean, there is a mighty iron uh, in ways that Greece simply wasn't. I'd also say that those scholars that want to confine it, sometimes they have some ulterior motives to do so. And it's that they believe that much of Daniel was written long, long after this time period. And it's just a bunch of folk tales woven together. And since most of those scholars don't believe in the possibility of prophecy, then they think, well, this couldn't have been Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel seeing the end from the beginning. This must have been some later writer just kind of squeezing it in and putting somebody else's name on it. Uh, so it's, it looks like prophecy when it isn't. And since they believe it was written during the intertestamental period, uh, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when the Seleucids were in charge of, of uh, Palestine, uh, that they don't even know about the coming of the Roman Empire. So we can't get that far. And so it's got to be, uh, and we'll see more of this later on in the apocalyptic second half of Daniel. I'm just trying to make the point that there is confusion and, and controversy, that there is... Uh, not a, a definitive, everyone agrees that this is exactly what it means. I would, it's, it reminds me of those who say there's 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. And I can agree with that to a point as far as the possibilities of, of redaction over time or editing. But if you're basing your whole uh, conclusion on the premise that prophecy is impossible, I do have a problem with that. Because we've seen prophecy fulfilled from Joseph Smith in the Civil War, for example. And we do believe in the gift of prophecy. It's one of the first things we say in the seventh article of faith, right? Uh, and so I, I trust in God's ability to tell a Nebuchadnezzar and a Daniel far in advance what history will look like. That's what they say prophecy is, history in reverse. And so here they see it all unfold. And the fact that it takes us much closer to this final dispensation through the, the toes of the European kingdoms, uh, this, this seems uh, much more usable, much more accurate as far as the big picture of God's work upon the earth, uh, which is exactly what Scripture is trying to convey. So keep that in mind as you go forward, not only in this chapter, but in some later ones as well. One other thing about this uh, iron and clay mixed uh, and all the toes, look at verse 43. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, and they don't seem to stick very well, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And again, that is a very apt description of the divided kingdoms in Europe and across the world, the rise of nationalism, uh, now we're getting closer and closer to the restoration. Okay? Next, verse 44. 
And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's another reason why I think we need to extend things all the way to the Roman Empire and on into European Middle Ages and that, the rise of nationalism and so on. Because it's only after all of that that God sets up his kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is part uh, prophecy of the coming of Christ, his kingdom upon the earth set up in the meridian of times. And part looking to the restoration of the fullness of the gospel in the dispensation of the fullness of times. Uh, amazing the, the prophetic nature of this dream. And then Daniel bears his testimony of this prophecy. It's not enough to just say, and here's what it means. It's Nebuchadnezzar, I know this is going to happen. This stone cut out of the mountain without hands, it will roll forth. It will fill the earth. Can you imagine how excited Daniel would be about this? Because he feels like his people have just been crushed by a Babylonian stone. And to realize that, no, this is a temporary setback, that our day has largely ended in apostasy, or ended because of apostasy. But the day will come where God will set up a, a kingdom with no worry that some latter-day Babylon will bring it to its knees. No, this is the one dispensation that will not end in apostasy. And so to see it standing forever, not left to any other people, that is our day. And so Daniel's testimony, verse 45 the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Nebuchadnezzar, you can bank on this. And saints of the latter days, we can too. Well, in response to that, verse 46 and 7, then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. I think it would take a lot for a, an emperor to do that. He worshipped Daniel, which, eh, not exactly what Daniel would have in mind, but we're getting closer rather than worshipping Babylonian gods. He commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. Now, again, treating him like a god, since only a god can do what he just did. But the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your god, forget about mine, your god is a god of gods and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. And if a pagan king can recognize that in our God, can we? Do we look to our Father in heaven as a revealer of secrets? And do we ask him our questions and seek his counsel and guidance? It's amazing how willing he is to let us know what we want and need to know. We just have to have the faith in, in that role of his, a revealer of secrets. Then, verse 48, the king made Daniel a great man. Uh, thanks a lot, Nebuchadnezzar. But God actually already did that. But okay, I'll take your promotion as well. He gave him many great gifts. Oh, thanks again, Nebuchadnezzar. God had already done that as well. The gift of prophecy, for example, the gift of revelation, seership, yeah. But I'll take your gifts as well. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel requested of the king, 
And he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'll use your names since that's how you referred to them, over the, set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So even then, when, he, when the king of the Babylonian empire is worshiping you like you're a god, Daniel still doesn't take all the credit. Uh, he shares it with his, with his friends. The friends he turned to at the beginning of this chapter when he didn't know what to do himself. I love that he's sharing the credit vertically as well as horizontally. Uh, those that were worthy enough to assist in gaining the revelation, they are worthy of reward as well. Now that's not going to last long for them though. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, again, seems to have some anger management issues. And so in chapter 3 of Daniel, we see the all-famous story, well-known, of the fiery furnace. In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was threescore cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Right there, I just want to stop and go, seriously, Nebuchadnezzar? You just had a dream about a giant statue? And it gets pulverized by the stone cut out of the mountain? And you want to go build a statue of your own? Seriously? Maybe he was so focused and fixated on, wait, I'm the head of gold? Oh, I wonder what that would look like. I bet I could carve this statue to resemble me. Uh, let's make sure the world knows about it. And we're not going to worry about the silver and the, and the, bra the brass and the, the iron and certainly not the clay down beneath. Let's make it gold all the way down. Let's somehow take what, what the God of Daniel gave me and let's Babylonify that too. Let's turn the whole thing into my kingdom and let's make sure there's no rocks around, shall we? Uh, I'll take an element of truth, mix it in with falsehood. Oh, there's some clay mingled with the, with the metal already. But I'll, I will just take what I, the parts of it that seem most oh, flattering uh, most self-assuring and not worry about any, any possible problems if I don't obey. So he makes this thing. Now notice again the, the, the dimensions. Three score cubits is 90 feet tall. Can you picture like a nine-story building in the ancient world? Uh, you thought the, the hanging gardens of Babylon were tall. Uh, and this thing is only six cubits wide. So that's nine feet, which seems like massive for a statue. But the proportions are ten to one. Can you imagine how top-heavy this thing would be? How unstable it would be? How prone to toppling over? I mean, it would take a massive amount of effort to make sure that you could keep propping this thing up. Sound like Babylon to you? Uh, sound like easy prey for a stone cut out of the mountain without hands? That it's, it's hard to be stable when those are your proportions. But the king commands it to be built. It is. Can you picture it just gleaming in the Babylonian sun out there on the plain? And he commands all of his officials to come to the dedication. They all come. Verse 2 lists them, the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, all the rulers of the provinces. So no wonder Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there. I don't know where Daniel is, by the way. Somehow he, he called in sick that day. We don't, we don't, we're not aware of him in this story at all. But don't worry, he'll get his chance to prove himself. But what's interesting about that list 
there's not a single aspect of life in Babylon that isn't invited to the dedication of its worldly image. Because after all, there's not a single aspect of your life that Babylon doesn't want to control. When it comes to your politics, for example, or how you live your life, let's make sure that Babylonian princes and governors are ca and captains are ruling over you. How do you make your decisions in life? Well, are there some Babylonian judges breathing down your neck? How do you spend your money? Because careful, the Babylonian treasure was, treasurer was brought along. And actually, how do you view the world? Because there are counselors aplenty here in the land of the Chaldees. And they are trying to get you to see things as they see them. Again, just think about this list and who would you put in those places in our last days? And what kind of Babylonian influences uh, are we opening ourselves to? Well, they're all there assembled. And a herald cries out under command of the king. And this is the command that he extends to everyone else. Verse 5 and 6. That at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music. I don't know what half of those instruments are, but that's okay. Quite the band they've got. But as soon as you hear the sound, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And just in case you're not motivated enough just to obey, whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar still hasn't overcome his rashness. He's either unwilling or able to learn or change. And so in the very same hour, no chance for you to take time and think through things. No, I want immediate obedience, because otherwise there will be immediate consequences. We're going to reverse what Daniel was trying to do with the, king, the chief of the eunuchs back in chapter 1. Trying to re re reduce the patience that Daniel asked for back in chapter 2. No, it's, you need to, it's almost like trying to re retrain our reflexes so that we just do exactly what Babylon is asking us without even having to think. We are being reprogrammed to think in Babylonian ways and, and do Babylonian things as soon as we hear the Babylonian music start to play. To be conditioned, to, be a, to, to have worldly perspectives. That's exactly what's happening here. And that's going to put these Hebrew boys in an interesting situation. It's only going to be a matter of time before the music starts to play. What will I do? Will I purpose in my heart to be different? Or will I just wait until the music plays and then try to make up my mind? Oh, it'll probably be too late then. Think about these boys and what they've already decided. Will I march to the beat of a Babylonian drummer? Will I allow the, the beats of Babylon to determine my pace and where I go and what I do, how I view myself and view the world around me? What will I do here? And will I, how will I react when I am immediately condemned by the court of public opinion? It's really interesting. In the 18th century, I believe, I think it was Jeremy Bentham 
who came up with this idea of the ultimate way to control inmates uh, at great cost savings for the government. He created a prison, an ideal prison, that he called the panopticon. Sounds like a transformer. Pan means all, and optics are seen. So we're going to have an all-seeing prison that in some ways won't even need a warden for the jail. Because what we're going to do is we're going to have all the cells kind of on the outside facing in, and they will be lighted. Everyone can see into the cells. But in the middle will be like this central guard tower, but the guard tower is in the dark. The, in the darkened guard tower, they can look out in all directions and can always see what's going on on the cell block. But the, but the inmates can never tell if the guard is looking at them. Or even if there is a guard, for that matter, it's this threat of permanent, constant surveillance. And because I'm, I, I'm under, in the danger of being watched, I better behave myself. I don't know of a better analogy for popular opinion than the panopticon where we live our lives under the threat of being publicly shamed. We worry constantly that someone is watching us and is going to judge us harshly for living by gospel standards. And we worry all the time if we will be condemned in court and if people will laugh at us for our beliefs. There's the great and spacious building, its own panopticon, Looking down on us, is anybody even in there? Uh, is it just the laughter I think I'm hearing? Or is that the, the specter of pointing fingers? It's really interesting that in this moment, what are these Hebrew boys going to do with that threat looming over them? Well, we don't have to wait long to find out because sure enough, the music starts to play. And everyone, all the people of Babylon do exactly as commanded. Can you imagine the sight off in the distance, in the, the, the plain of Dura, a 90-foot statue gleaming in the sun. And all of a sudden, music starts to play. You can hear the dulcimer and the sackbut, whatever those are. And the mass multitudes immediately drop to their knees and bend to the ground as three figures stand up and stand out and seem to stand alone. Are their knees trembling a little? Well, at least they haven't dropped to their knees. They are standing firm and probably swallowing hard and reaching deep, but fearlessly, they don't care what people will think. Valiantly, they ignore the possible consequences I will not bow to Babylon. I will choose what is right and let the consequence follow. And so they do. Well, outrage, the people report to the king in verse 12. There are certain Jews. Now, certain Jews? Does that mean there, there are other Jews that we're not mad at? Other Jews that did bow before the gods of Babylon, this golden statue? Will some saints go the way of the world? Sadly, yes. 
but there will be certain saints. In fact, great play on words. Not just certain saints, some of them will be like this, but certain saints. Saints who are certain of what they believe, that will refuse to bow. Such were these three. But certain Jews, whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, of, I mean, of all the nerve, the ones that are supposed to be helping run the place, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I mean, they're bearing Babylonian names. What's wrong with them? These men, O king, have not regarded thee. Oh, this is a personal affront. They're going against you, almighty king. Let's play on your pride, your vanity. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Oh, you see what they've done? They have turned an act of religious devotion into an act of political or social treason. It's exactly what the Jews do to Jesus. They're angry at him because of blasphemy. He's claiming to be the son of God. The Romans don't care about that. You Jews can believe whatever wacko things you want to. Just be good citizens. Be good Romans. Well, you'll never be Romans, but behave yourself while under the Roman thumb. Well, that's not going to work for the leaders of the Jews, so what do they do? Let's, okay, if the Romans don't care about religion, they care about politics. We're the opposite. So we'll take his religious affront, we call it blasphemy, and turn it into a political affront, and they'll call it treason. Perfect. Now, this guy claims to be the king of the Jews when there's no king but Caesar. You should do something about this. And that's exactly what they're saying to Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about their gods or any kind of religious freedom. They're going against you and your kingdom. And you need to squash them in the act. Verse 13 and 14. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury. I told you he had anger management issues. He commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true... O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, maybe he's actually making progress, because at least he suspended judgment long enough to know, did you really do this? Or I'm hoping these are false reports, because if they're not, then there will be hell to pay for you. Well, they, those reports were true. We did not bow to your God, to your, to your image, so the king repeats the command, repeats the consequences of disobeying it, and then asks a fascinating rhetorical question. He simply says, And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? In other words, there's no way out. Their response, starting in verse 16, is incredible. First they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Other translations render that, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. Talk about guts. Your life's on the line and you're talking smack to your executioner? He asks you a question and you're like, yeah, I don't really think I need to answer that one. Uh, I'm not, I don't need to defend myself before you. Who do you think you are? Oh, yeah, you think you're the king of the known universe, which you kind of are. You think that you have the power to execute us? Well, I guess in a way you do. But let me tell you what I do want to say. And their next response is, it floors Nebuchadnezzar. It ticks him off to no end. But it has become one of the great calls to faith that we could possibly see in Scripture. It's magnificent. They say, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, 
is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. I mean, if you really were asking that, who is that God that shall deliver you? Well, glad you asked. Let me answer. Let me introduce you to a God that doesn't just reveal secrets, but also delivers saints. He has that power. No matter how hot you stoke the fire in the furnace, oh, the Spirit of God like a fire is burning, and that God will deliver us. If it be so, that is. But then this next part, But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now what's incredible about what they just said is their absolute faith in God's power. Coupled with the way they couched it in an honoring of God's will. We're caught sometimes between God's omnipotence and his omniscience. Trusting his omnipotence that he can do anything to help us. But at the same time needing to trust his omniscience that he knows better than I do. And though I'll, in this moment I really hope he'll use his omnipotence in my favor. If his omniscience trumps that omnipotence and he chooses not to act with that power. Then I still trust him. How's that for faith? Again, notice what they said. Our God whom we serve is able. We know he can. We just don't know if he will. And I'm okay with that. If you think about the leper that Jesus heals, in one of the most beautiful examples of faith coupled with submission, trusting omnipotence and omniscience, he says to the Lord, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I love that one. If thou wilt. What is he ifing? Is, what is he questioning? God's will. And only God's will. If thou wilt. What is he not questioning? His power. Thou canst make me clean. I wonder sometimes, especially we brethren of the Melchizedek priesthood, when someone asks for a priesthood blessing of healing and we lay our hands upon their head, Does the question ever cross your mind, can I do this? It's okay if it does. It should. But you need to be more specific about what you mean by can. If can I do this means do I have the permission to do this, that's the right way to ask it. But if can I do this means do I have the power to do this, that's the wrong question. Think about that. When you are asking can, don't wonder about your power. Wonder about God's permission. When you ask can, don't think, am I able? Think, am I allowed? Because we are able. Because God is able. And that's what these three Hebrews say. We know he is. We just don't know if that's his will in this circumstance. And you know what? We trust his will. So come what may. We will honor him instead of honoring you. There has been so much said about these two phrases. And I just want to add my testimony that life is spent proving the contraries between if it be so and but if not. If it be God's will, I know 
He can heal us from our afflictions. He can forgive us from any sin. He can perform miracles in our lives and the lives of others. If it be so, every prayer can be answered the way we hope. But if not, is the other half of the equation, where we simply trust God. If you look at Scripture, you will see people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who get the if it be so. Oh, sorry, spoiler alert. I should have... uh, They're spared, okay? We're going to see that in the rest of this chapter. I'm sure you knew. But they get the if, if it be so. Who are the female equivalents of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Three Hebrew boys willing to put their life on the line because they wouldn't lower their standards? Well, there were three sisters, the three daughters of Oneida mentioned in Abraham chapter 1. And they weren't spared. They got the, but if not. And amazingly, were okay with it. They trusted God. In fact, Abraham assumed based on the sacrifice of those daughters of Oneida, that he would not live. He would not survive his sacrifice either. And yet, miraculously, he got the, if it be so. You take someone like Samuel the Lamanite, and as the arrows were flying in his direction, he got the, if it be so, and was spared. But you also get an Abinadi, And as the flames were rising, he got the but if not. Jesus asked for the if it be so in Gethsemane. If it be possible, take this cup from me. But he submitted to the but if not. And said, let thy will not mine be done. As I said, our lives are spent trying to hold on to both of those statements. Not the fatalism of saying not just but if not, but it probably won't be. No, we need to hold on to that faith of if it be so. But not making demands of God, simply hoping and praying and desiring of Him, but being okay with whatever He chooses to do. If thou wilt, thou canst do anything. And I trust you. A story was actually told of a sweet sister who was struggling in her prayers and feeling like they weren't being answered, at least weren't being answered in her preferred way. And based on the wisdom of these three Hebrew boys, she added a phrase after asking God for things. And it started with, but if not. She was a young mother and she prayed that the baby would sleep through the night and then added, but if not. Help me wake up with a cheerful attitude. (laughs) Help me not be angry and frustrated because I'm sleep deprived. And And she said that over and over she found herself asking for what she wanted most, but then giving God a second option, a but if not alternative, that if that isn't your will, I'm okay with that. I would love this as, as, as a possibility as well. And she said, boy, did my prayers become more successful as far as being answered is concerned. This is a beautiful principle and one where I know I could stand some improvement. Maybe you too. Now in verse 19 and 20, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't quite as impressed as we are. He's just like, wow, that's genius. I love the contrary you're proving. No. He said, 
it's going to be a but if not for you. Okay. If it be so, now it ain't so, because there is no God that can do what you think yours is able to do. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, so much that the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, that vein in the forehead was really popping out, okay? I mean, his face is changing, he's so livid. Therefore he spake, he probably screamed or shrieked or, or spit it out. He commanded they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. We're going to crank this up, crank up your consequences. You, you thought it was just the panopticon, people looking at you? Oh, we'll, we'll light the fire so everyone can see. He commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning and fiery furnace. Talk about stacking the deck against the if it be so. In some ways, this is the reverse of what Actually, there's a parallel of what Elijah did up on Mount Carmel. Uh, when he's oh, having his competition with the priests of Baal, he stacked the deck against himself, against the God of Israel, as he dumped on more and more water, making it all the more hard for God to do what he needed to do. Well, this is the opposite. Let's make it all the hotter yeah, on, God, on, on Baal's side, or in this case, Babylon's side. Let's stoke the flames to the point that God cannot put them out. There's no hope for you here. So, verse 22 and 23, Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, no wasting time here, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flames of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now that backfired. It, it, it consumed the mightiest men of his army? Interesting. Talk about digging a pit for your enemies, but falling into it yourself. Talk about Babylon scorched by its own flames. That's what happened here. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. But falling down isn't the same as going up in flame. In fact, verse 24 and 25, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, wait, 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 did, did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, lo, I, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. They have no hurt. And most troubling of all, most astonishing of all to him, the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, the King James translators, all of whom were Christians, saw in this verse divine intervention on the level of Jesus Christ, the Savior himself. We would agree with them on that. Some have wondered, wait a minute, do the Babylonians have some, some religious belief in the Son of God? Because this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. But other translators, probably closer to what Nebuchadnezzar himself had in mind, simply translate this as, there's a fourth like a son of the gods. Well, that's all he can wrap his head around. Uh, there's some brilliant figure within the flames. He must be divine. He must be a god himself, or a son of the gods at least. But those with eyes to see, those that know, this is more than just a son of the gods. This is the son of God.
And the beauty of this miracle is not just the preservation, but the introduction. It's not just that they were saved, it's that they got to meet their Savior. And to me, that's, that's the best part of every miracle. Not just the specific thing that happens, but the specific someone I come to know in the process. In some ways, this is one of the most dramatic examples you'll ever see of the promise that we see in the New Testament that where two or three are gathered in my name, there shall I be in the midst of them. Even if it's in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Oh, that's where you're having the meeting? Whew. Okay. I can still come. That, and I'll say this too. Wherever there are three that stand alone on the plains of Dura, there'll be a fourth standing with you in the fire. In fact, that applies no matter what the number. Where two or three are gathered, can we go even beneath the scriptural minimum? Yes. If you're the only one standing up and standing out. The Lord makes sure you still never stand alone. If there's only one, there will always be a second, capital S. And it is the Son of God. Well, the king, again, still astonished, approaches the furnace. Probably doesn't get too close, right? Uh, his mightiest men are, have fallen even before they got to the flames. But he commands those three men to come forth. He probably knows he has no power over the fourth. But then verse 27 says that the princes, governors, captains, the king's counselors being gathered together, they saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Now that's shocking. I mean, you go to, the, to, the, to a camp out and you always come home smelling like the, like the campfire. Uh, I go and, oh, I, you know, smoke some meat for dinner and, yep, I smell like it when I get back. I don't, I'm not complaining, by the way, wonderful smells. How can you be in the flame itself? and still not smell like smoke at all. It's amazing. Not a hair singed? Sounds like God, who numbers the very hairs of our head, wanted to make sure that in this if-it-be-so moment, these three Hebrews didn't lose a single one. I've sometimes asked my students who know this story well, did the fire have any effect on them? And the initial answer is always, no. In fact, that's the verse they quote. It had no power. No, not a hair there. Had not, not in their coat. Clothing wasn't changed. Smell wasn't there. Absolutely no effect. And as I wait and smile a little, usually they rethink and go, oh, I think I see where you're going with this. Did the fire have any effect on these three Hebrews? Absolutely. The way a refiner's fire affects silver or gold by burning away the dross. Think about this beautiful line in the incredible hymn, How Firm a Foundation. The flames will not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And after this fire, these three Hebrew boys came out a purer gold 
than Nebuchadnezzar's statue could ever be. The flame had its desired effect. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar spake, far more calmly, I'm sure, this time, and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He should have used their real names there, because then he would have used the name of their God three times. But blessed be he who hath sent his angel, in fact, he sent his son, and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. <sighs> Fine, I admit it. Your god proved himself. I guess he does deserve to be honored, after all. Are we starting to sense the stone roll a little? Is that statue on the plain starting to wobble? It's only a matter of time before it comes crashing down. But in the meantime, verse 29, Therefore I make a decree, Nebuchadnezzar says. It's going to be the opposite decree that began this chapter. This one, that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill. He still really likes that. I guess he's got a lot of dung saved up. He's got to use it for something. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Was it Brigham Young or Joseph Smith, I can't remember, who said that every time you kick Mormonism, as it was called, you end up kicking it upstairs. <laughs> That's what happened here. And because they refused to bow, they were uh, bowed down, they were actually lifted higher. And there's something to be said if, our, if we're willing to stand, stick to our guns and stand up for what we know to be true even in the midst of Babylon. Well, we've got another dream coming up. Are we starting to see the, the, the way things are organized in this marvelous little book? Chapter 1, here's a test of your faith. And then chapter 2, here's a dream to interpret. Chapter 3, here's another test of your faith. Chapter 4, here's another dream to interpret. This one is another dream of Nebuchadnezzar, but this time it has to do with a tree. Less famous than the one about the statue and the stone. But verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Here's my message to you. Peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Well, it depends on which God you're talking about, Nebuchadnezzar. If you're talking about your gods, then sorry, no, it won't be an everlasting kingdom or an eternal dominion. But if you're talking about the God of Daniel or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, then yeah, you're actually right on that one. But that's just the pleasantries to begin the, the message. Here's the, the rest of the decree, verse 4 and 5. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Does the Lord sometimes do that with us too, trying to rouse us out of our sleepy ease, our shallow contentment? There we are at rest, but not in the Lord's rest. In our house, not in the Lord's. Flourishing in the palace, but perhaps not flourishing in our faith. And so God tries to, to rouse us. 
Now, again, he calls in his wise men, uh, his astrologers, his Chaldeans, his magicians. Can you explain this thing to me? And, of course, they can't. Verse 8 and 9, But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. See, I have to bring it up every time because it just seems to slip right off him all the time. Daniel, come on, why won't you go by your new name? Well, here's why. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? Uh, You're close, Nebuchadnezzar, but not quite. He doesn't have the spirit of the holy gods, lowercase g, as in the Babylonian pantheon. No, he has the spirit of the holy, capital G, God, singular, as in the God of Israel. But before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. I need them both again. Give me, do what no one can do, revelation, and I'll trust what anyone can do, interpretation. In some ways I love Nebuchadnezzar's description of Daniel here. I hope that someday I can qualify for the same description. Someone that has the Spirit of God with him. I want that. I want to live in such a way that I can have that gift to the point that no secret, or we could say no mystery, no question, no concern, no doubt, troubles me. It's one of the reasons I called this channel Unshaken. It's one of the reasons I feel so strongly about Jacob's experience with Sherem and what left him unshaken, that he couldn't be shaken because he was so close to God. That's what I want. That's what I'm striving for. And I'm grateful that God is willing to steady us so that we might not be troubled by things we don't yet know. That's Daniel for you. Oh, you, you have a, a dream, another dream. We've, had, we've done this before. We can do it again. Let me turn to the Lord on this one. And sure enough, he does. In verse 10 through 12, he begins to explain. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. Any guesses what he's seen? Sound a little like the head of gold on the statue that he saw in his previous dream? Yes, sure enough, this is the mighty Babylonian empire. His branches spreading far and wide. Nebuchadnezzar perched at the top of it like an eagle, I'm sure. Looking out over his domain and fruit and the, the fowls and, and beasts of the earth find shelter there. He's, he's the ruler of all. But here's the problem. Verse 13 and 14, I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. A watcher? Think about someone with eyes to see, a seer, a watchman on the tower. A holy one come down from heaven? Think of one worthy of divine direction. And he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, the fowls from his branches. Oh, How's that for an axe or saw that boasts itself against its hewer? We, 
We saw that in Isaiah as he's waxing prophetic and saying, O Lucifer, thou son of the morning, how thou hast been cut down to size, you who tried to rise up above everything, even above the throne of God. Who's he referring to in prophecy there? The king of Babylon. Hmm. Here the message is getting even closer. That to Nebuchadnezzar himself, you mighty tree, prepare for the axe. The head of gold will fall to the, the chest of silver. This tree will be brought down. In verse 15 and 16, nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth. Even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. Now that part is odd. A heart changed from man's to beast's? In Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, we saw hearts of stone changed into hearts of flesh. Natural man turned into spiritual man or woman of, of God. But this one's a strange one. Man's heart turned to beast's heart. And what's up with the dew of heaven and with the beast and the grass? In some ways, what Nebuchadnezzar is being told is, okay, the tree is going to be cut down. And if it's you and your kingdom, it's not... I mean, if you're the, person, the personification of your empire, just like the empire will be brought to its knees, so will you. In fact, you yourself, O mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, will end up being a stump of your former self, a shell of the man you once were. You'll end up in some ways being more beast than human. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, verse 17, keep reading. The matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. God is in charge here, Nebuchadnezzar, not you. He rules, not you. He's the tree of life. Your tree will not stand forever. And then in verse 18, this dream I and King Nebuchadnezzar have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare the interpretation thereof. For as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, I know that from prior experience, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Now this one might not have actually needed the spirit of the holy gods so much as the previous. This one seems a little more clear what's going on. But especially these, these wise men, maybe they're wiser than we thought. Maybe they did understand what this was all about. And it's like, I, I, you tell, I'm not telling him. Uh, he's going to get chopped down, uh, brought down to, to size. Uh-uh. Let's let Daniel do this one. Let's feign ignorance this time. We didn't have to fake it last time. Uh, but Daniel, as a watcher himself, as a holy one himself, Sometimes you have to say the hard things. You have to teach the difficult doctrines. You have to let people know the consequences of their sins. And Daniel has the courage to do so. Now Daniel's human though. In verse 19, he's concerned about the, the news he has to break. 
Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour. His thoughts troubled him. So yes, yeah, like, how do I say this? I can't sugarcoat this prophecy. Now the king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Okay, I guess I'll just let it trouble you then, since you're the, the target audience here. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. This is not something you're going to want to hear, but I do have to tell it to you. You are the tree, he tells him. You're as mighty as it is. But it's only a matter of time until you are cut down. And even worse, verse 25, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Now, what are you talking about? I'm going to be like a beast. I'm going to be watered with the dews of heaven and until I know God. Well, in some ways, that's what, what Moses was saying to Pharaoh. Remember, who's the Lord and who are you? Well, you're about to find out. Uh, and you'll get quite the introduction through these plagues of Egypt. They will bring you to the, your knees. The, the tree of, e of, of Pharaoh will be chopped down as well. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, he was brought down mentally to the point of almost a mere animal existence. It's interesting how it unfolds. But before we get there, look at verse 27. It's amazing what Daniel says here. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. In some ways, that's Daniel's version of the if it be so, but if not. Uh, if it be so, you might still be able to avoid the consequences of your sins by repenting of them. But if not, then there's no escape. I, I love the fact that Daniel has absolute confidence in, in God's prophecy. This was a prophetic dream, and it's going to happen. But I wonder if there's a way to avoid that future. For your sake. Remember we saw this, in, I think, in Jeremiah when he said to pray for the peace of Babylon. Because if they're at peace, then the people in, in captivity and exile there could be at peace as well. Daniel wants to keep Nebuchadnezzar happy in hopes of keeping the people happy. And as he's gently crying repentance here, if you'll just break off thy sins. Yes, that's what they are, king. One of the specific ones he talks about is you're not showing mercy to the poor. And I'm sure that would include the, the Israelites there in, in captivity. If you'll change the way you rule, if you'll change the, your breaking of the second commandment, and I'm sure the breaking of the first, there might be hope for you. And I love that prophets don't just warn us about the consequences of our sins, but they try to help us avoid them by promising forgiveness if we'll only repent. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't. But time passed, and a year later, he's just strolling through the palace, enjoying his wealth and his power, the, the spreading branches all around him. In fact, he begins boasting in verse 30, 
Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? How's that for personal pronouns? How's that for eye problems, as Elder Packer used to call them? How's that for pride and selfishness, self-centeredness? Well, unfortunately, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. That's basically God's equivalent of timber, because the tree is about to fall. Pride goeth before the fall, and Nebuchadnezzar had way too much of it. And so the axe began to swing, and the wood chips began to fly. And in verse 33, the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. Trying to hold on to your, kind of clutch at your perch in the mighty tree, O mighty king? Well, you're going to look more like a bird than you realize. King Nebuchadnezzar in this account has lost his mind. It's actually really interesting as far as American history is concerned that the, the far-reaching tree of the British Empire, one of the first massive branches that was lopped off were the North American colonies. And it happened under the reign of King George III that also suffered from such a, some mental breakdown that someone like Thomas Paine that had a wicked sense of humor and was merciless in trying to excoriate Great Britain, one time called King George III His Majesty. But he snuck in an extra D between the A and the J. It was His Majesty. And people knew exactly what he was talking about. Oh, crazy King George that lost his kingdom. It's just interesting what's happening in a similar vein in ancient Babylon. Now, verse 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. Interesting, when we look at ourselves, we do kind of lose ourselves in there. Whereas turning back to God, understanding can return. That's what happened to him. He was healed from this mental malady. And what does he do now that he understands things better? Uh, Daniel had warned him, you will come to know God. Well, how's this for an introduction? He says, I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, unlike mine, and his kingdom not my own, is from generation to generation. He's starting to get it. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Now I get it, since I was reduced to less than nothing myself. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That is an incredibly humble acknowledgement on Nebuchadnezzar's part. God knows what he's doing. I didn't. God is higher than I am. He is the axe and can do whatever he wants with 
with wee little trees. I will say by, by way of his mental breakdown background, you could say that pride is insanity, whereas humility is true reason. Finally then, verse 36 and 37, at the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me as well. My counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom. He, he outlived his madness, okay? And his kingdom continued for a time. Excellent majesty was added unto me, he says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. He had learned that from personal experience. He'd learned his lesson. And I'm grateful to know that. In fact, grateful to know that just because we lose our minds sometimes over, the, over pride or thinking that it's all about us, we can come to our senses. We can regain a proper perspective about things. We can even regain a lost kingdom of sorts. And I'm grateful for God's mercy and forgiveness in allowing all of that to take place. But to whatever degree there's like father, like son, we'll see that in the next chapter in Daniel 5. This is the story, another famous one. The first half of Daniel is full of them. This is the story of the writing on the wall. In verse 1, you'll meet Belshazzar, the king. Not to be confused with Belteshazzar, Daniel's Babylonian nickname. The reigns have passed down from Nebuchadnezzar onto his successor. And Belshazzar makes a great feast to a thousand of his lords. How's that for a party? And they drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Now, historically, there's an error there because Belshazzar is not actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar. But ultimately, the kingdom does get passed down to him at some point. So let's con uh, kind of truncate the history and just this one is followed by the next. This is the next story on the list anyway. But what's interesting here is as they're getting drunk on Babylonian wine, they're also drunk on their own pride and sense of self-importance to the point that they start feeling like, you know, I'm feeling pretty godly myself. I can look down on other gods, in fact, from my heights in the pantheon. Uh, here we are drinking wine out of these golden vessels. You know, I seem to recall some vessels that the God of Israel supposedly drank out of in his palace, his temple back in Jerusalem. And here they are in Babylon. So go get those. Won't that be fun? We can pretend to be the God of Israel. We can mock God by drinking out of cups with his name on it. Shall we do that? Well, while they're drink drinking out of the Lord's vessels, and while they are praising their own graven images and false gods, you wonder if the 90-foot statue is still gleaming out in the valley somewhere. Verse 5 and 6, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. There it is, etching itself into the plaster on the wall. And when the king sees it, 
His countenance was changed. His thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. Not laughing anymore, King Belshazzar. Not mocking, pointing the finger of scorn. Oh, because you saw another finger appear. And it seems to be pointing at you. There's nothing quite like seeing the hand of God, or even the finger, to bring us back to our senses. Well, the king promises great wealth and power, and he has plenty of that to give up, to anyone who can read the writing on the wall. Sound like what, uh, what Nebuchadnezzar was offering for anyone who could interpret his dream? Again, there's so many interesting parallels, echoes, repeated events throughout the book of Daniel. And no one's able to. But then the queen... And based on what she's about to say, I don't know if this is Belshazzar's wife. She might not be old enough to know the old stories from the old reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So it might be Belshazzar's mother or even grandmother uh, who remembered. This is ringing some bells back from Nebuchadnezzar's reign. There were there was some writing on the wall of his mind in his sleep that he couldn't read either. But there was a Hebrew man. What was his name again? Belt, Bel, Bel, Bel. Ah, he always went by Daniel. I wonder where that Daniel guy is. Is he still around? Can he, does he still have the spirit of the mighty gods? Is he still cunning in knowledge? Can, does he still have access to a God who revealeth secrets? Let's go find out. Now, verse 12, For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, showing of hard sentences, and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. I love this description of Daniel. Just as much as the previous one we saw earlier, that I just pray someday will apply to me, and to you, and to all of us. Can we be the type that have an excellent spirit? One that doesn't get flustered in hard circumstances, one that doesn't get shaken by other people's concerns, but rather we have the knowledge and understanding to help them through their struggles. That we've paid whatever price is necessary to show hard sentences. Like, yeah, this part of church history is tricky. Let me help you understand this with some context and what's going on. Or, yeah, this one's really, this is difficult to wrap your head around. This is a hard sentence. Let's, let's try to make sense of it together. My favorite phrase, as you probably guessed, the dissolving of doubts. To have enough light to dispel the darkness, to have enough faith that doubt just can't stick around. If we can help dissolve those doubts with the light of truth, with the power of faith, then our friends and family members won't be shaken. We've still got a long ways to go till we get there. But that's my goal. I hope it's one of yours as well. But keep reading. King Belshazzar calls for Daniel. He describes Daniel's reputation and then makes him the same promise he'd made to everybody else, all his wise men. But 17, Daniel answers and says before the king, ah, let thy gifts be to thyself. <laughs> Give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. One more attribute I so admire in Daniel. I will not use my gifts for self-aggrandizement. I'm not in this for me, he's saying. 
when people, I, every once in a while, when I'm asked to do a fireside somewhere, someone will ask me about my speaking fees. And I always laugh. I'm like, what church are you a part of? Aren't you the same as mine? Speaking fees? Are you kidding me? It's a fireside. It's called consecration. I promised I would do that. So as long as it fits my, my calendar, I'm happy to come. And no, no speaking fee. Uh, keep your uh, gifts for yourself. Give those rewards to someone else. Uh, that's, I've even done a few things for people of other faiths, and they're always shocked when I respond in the same terms. Like, what, what would it cost for you to come and do a Q&A in our congregation? I'm like, nothing. Like, what? What would it cost for you to come and do a kind of an adult religion thing to explain? I did those in Tennessee all the time. Uh, and and what's, what's your honorarium is what they would call it. I'm like, I don't need an honorarium when I consider it an honor just to come and represent the Lord I love. Uh, silver and gold have I none, but silver and gold is certainly not anything I'm going to ask for. And so that's exactly what Daniel, just give your reward to somebody else. I love that about him. Now he rehearses to Belshazzar uh, the type of king his father Nebuchadnezzar had been. Or again, the connection, your predecessor, we should say, to be more historically accurate. He was all powerful. He was all feared. And yes, he was all prideful till he came to himself after a period of losing himself. Is the same going to re be required of you? Well, we're about to see. In verse 20, he says of, of Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Interesting. His heart was lifted up, so God brought him down. Uh, his mind was hardened. And does that kind of hint at the softening of his mind in a literal way? Because of the hardening of pride that was taking place? Well, whatever the case, this unfortunately is looking like a like father, like son kind of a situation, or like predecessor, like successor. In verse 22, Thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all of this. <laughs> you knew the stories. You don't have to have some old grandma queen remind you of me. You knew about Nebuchadnezzar yourself. You should have known better. You should have learned from that earlier example and experience. Don't think you're immune to it. Don't, think, don't assume it can't happen to you. But you have lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. You're desecrating sacred space. Don't go there. Thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, stone. Man, he's going down the statue even further than Nebuchadnezzar even, ever saw. Those things see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. You have been ignoring the Lord's hand all along. And so he chose to make that hand absolutely obvious. It reached through the veil and wrote on your wall, Thy walls are continually before me. Oh, yeah. And I can even use them as my message board. Are you paying attention? What was that message? Verse 25 through 28. This is the writing that was written. 
Now, I have no idea how to speak Babylonian, uh, <laughs> so forgive my probably mispronunciation. But mini, mini, tekel, ufarsin. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. He says that twice, just in case you missed the first time. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, which is where you get ufarsin, same consonants there. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Oh, we're seeing the head of gold giving way to the chest of silver already. How's that for the writing on the wall? Your tree is about to be cut down. Your statue is about to be bowled over. Your party. <laughs> All these festivities will end in mourning, not in joy. Belshazzar then rewards Daniel according to his promise, which is so interesting. He's not angry about the bad news. Maybe he doesn't trust it. Maybe he thinks there's ways to get around it. That's just God's finger. Maybe his eye is somewhere else, and I can still escape. But then, verse 30 and 31, In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And Darius, or Darius, the Median, took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Wow, it didn't take long for those consequences to come, did it? Which makes me wonder, how far in advance can I read the writing on the wall? Is it legible to me that pride goeth before the fall? Will I humble myself and turn to the Lord my God, trusting that his kingdom is the one worth building, not mine? That following his teachings, keeping his commandments, honoring his vessels, and guarding their sanctity in his sanctuary, that's the best way to live. Otherwise, where will his finger point? It'll point at me. What I'm grateful for is that when his finger points at us, first, it's always to beckon us to come closer, to change, to repent. Because if we do, then there's still a writing on the wall. But it's all glorious to read. Now, when you shift from the first half of Daniel to this second, we're not quite there. We have one more all-important, famous story to set the stage. And what I love about Daniel chapter 6 is it gives Daniel the, the chance to, to prove himself the way his three Hebrew friends did back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace because they refused to bow to this golden statue gleaming on the plains of Dura. Well, chapter 6, I, I, like I said before, Daniel, where was Daniel that day? I don't know. Would, he certainly wasn't bowing with the rest. Okay? He, that's so out of character for Daniel. But what's interesting to me is if you feel like you've missed your chance to experience the refiner's fire, not that most people are lining up for their turn. Don't get me wrong. You don't have to court adversity. It'll come. And here it comes to Daniel. We will each have our chance to be refined. And if it's not in a fiery furnace, perhaps ours will be in a lion's den. 
You see, the challenge here is Darius, the new king, or Darius, I'm not sure how he would have pronounced it, but Darius organizes his kingdom with 120 princes, three presidents that oversee them, and of those three presidents, guess who's number one? You guessed it, it's Daniel. I uh, don't know if he's still trying to shove Belteshazzar down his throat, but either way, you're in charge, which makes you wonder, how are those other two presidents going to feel? Especially as they're outranked by an outsider. How are the 120 princes going to feel? Well, Daniel is going to have a lot of opposition from, well, owing from pride from below, even though he, I doubt he has any pride from above. Well, sure enough, verse 3 and 4, this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. It's all about God, not about him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. And then, sure enough, human nature, then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. That's amazing to be so far above reproach that not even your enemies can find something to complain about. I mean, there they are scouring social media. They're looking for any skeleton in the closet. And Daniel's like, I don't even have a closet to keep skeletons in. Uh, so above board, so above reproach. Well, that's where they saw their, their opening. It's his religion that keeps him so above board. So what if we made his religion illegal? He won't break the law unless we make his unbreakable faith. Yeah, that's what we'll do. That's what we'll do. This is genius on their part. Let's make his righteousness wickedness. Sound like what Isaiah had prophesied about? They'll call good evil and evil good. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll use something against him that he's going to, that, that, that he will refuse to bow on. So, verse 5, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So, this is what we're going to do. Here's our plan, verse 7 and 8. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors, the captains, does it sound like everyone against him? They have consulted together. So, let's make this seem unanimous. Let's turn popular opinion against religious practice. Does that sound like what's happening in our Babylonian day? I mean, feel free to believe whatever you want, but just don't act on it, especially not publicly. No, we need a naked public sphere, as they call it, which is just enthroning the religion known as non-religion. That's when secularism becomes the, becomes the unofficial official religion. Well, let, let's do this, okay? Let's establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, that's all. Let's do a little trial run, no big deal. Uh, we'll just make this a temporary uh, statute because that's all we're going to need to accomplish our goal. <laughs> you see, we can just say that this is not some permanent change, but boy, is it hard to bring some things back once they've been eliminated. Exactly what they're thinking. Now, no one can pray to anybody, save of thee, O king, is the plan. You can't ask any peti petition except you. We really want to elevate you, king. And of course, that's going to go to a king's head. And if anyone does ask anyone else for any kind of favor, then he shall be cast into the den of lions. 
Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing, hurry, hurry, that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Now, please do this before you, you give much thought to it. I mean, don't ponder the unintended consequences. I mean, we've got it all, uh, all prepared for you. All it needs is your signature, your, your seal of approval. And once that's on there, not even you can change it. That was the law of the Medes and the Persians, and they're the ones in charge now. That, by the way, should awaken us to the fact that some interesting history has passed, that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were Babylonian kings, but sure enough, the tree's been cut, the writing on the wall's been fulfilled, and there went the Babylonian kingdom. It's amazing how short-lived it was, which again is one of the reasons it becomes the ultimate symbol for the last days. Such passing fancies and fads. Uh, no, that, it seems so all-powerful, so permanent. No, all that glitters is not gold, not even the head of that statue. Well, it's already down now to the chest of silver. We are now in the empire of the Medes and the Persians. King Darius is in charge, and his presidents and princes want to make sure that everyone knows it, especially if they can use that, what seems like a relatively innocuous law. We just don't want people to think that there's other powers or authorities out there. And he's probably, again, a little clueless, a little gullible here, thinking, oh yeah, that makes total sense. We don't want them turning to other people for permission. Well, Daniel wasn't turning to other people. He was turning upward, heavenward, to God. That's what prayer was. But that's the part that these sly, sneaky princes were trying to outlaw. Well, sure enough, notice what happens next. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now you can pick apart every phrase, and I love that Daniel refuses to change a thing. When it says he knew the writing was signed, I mean, without that, couldn't he have feigned ignorance? Oh, almighty King Darius, I, I had no idea that that had been, I know I'm the chief president of the three, but those 120 princes did that without my knowledge of it even. So I, I, I'm so sorry, I, I prayed, it was to God. I, is that what you meant by the, by the decree? I, I, I wouldn't think so, but, but now that I know it, that's the last I'll do that. Are, are, we, are we okay here? No, he, no, he knew. He's not going to feign ignorance in any of this. Next, when it says his windows were open, well, he could have closed them, right? And if I'm going to be religious, I guess I could at least do it behind closed doors. I'll do it in the privacy of my own home, and then hopefully no one will know about it. We can maintain the naked public sphere, religiously speaking, but I can have it fully furnished with faith on the inside where nobody has to know. Nope, not Daniel. He's going to leave those windows wide open. Now, next one, it says he kneeled upon his knees. He knelt. Do you remember, actually, in the Book of Mormon, when the Amulonites outlawed prayer, and Alma and his people continued praying, but they did it in their hearts? Daniel could have done that. And I'm not casting shade on Alma and his people, okay? Sometimes that's a wise thing to do. But in Daniel's case, nope, I'm going to kneel. 
with windows open, facing Jerusalem, as always, getting, getting my sights on the sanctuary of God. Oh, staring off into the distance, wishing I were still there myself, but praying to him for all the world to see. And yeah, I'm going to do it three times a day. Not three times at night or one time when I hope no one's watching. No, broad daylight, three times. And what I, the best part is at the end, as he did a four time. I know the legality of this has changed. I know public opinion on this has changed. But what's right is still right. And what's wrong is still wrong. And though society reverses the polarities of virtue and calls good evil and evil good, that won't change what I know from God is his divine standard. you got to love Daniel through all of this. Well, Daniel's enemies catch him in the act. Well, don't be so proud of yourself. He made that really easy. Okay, no difficulty there. But before they could present him to the king, again, they're sly. Before they drag Daniel in and throw him at the king's feet and say, guess what he did? No, because I could picture the king going, oh, that's not the situation. That's not what I had in mind. Instead, they reiterate the law and they ask the king, now, is this true? So just want to confirm uh, so that we're all on the same page here, Almighty King, with this unalterable decree that if anybody asks anything of anyone, then it's straight to death. We good on that? And the king's like, well, yeah, why are you bringing this up? Should I be nervous about something? <laughs> and then they throw Daniel at his feet. And when he realizes what has happened, verse 14, then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. I can't believe I was so gullible. I didn't think about the unintended consequences. He was displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. I'm going to look for any loopholes. I'm going to try everything I can to get you off the hook. He labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He knew he'd been tricked. But not even he could change the law. To that, I, I honestly wonder. I know that's the tradition, I guess. That's the, the law of the Medes and the Persians is not to change the law. But come on, Darius. You're the, the, the leader of the Medes and the Persians. You're, you're the emperor. Not even you? Well, he can't do it. The king's men, of course, would probably be the biggest obstacle because they wouldn't let him budge. They knew exactly what they were doing. They thought theirs was a foolproof plan. And pretty soon, there'll be a vacancy up at the top that hopefully one of us will be able to fill. In some ways, this reminds me of the scribes and the Pharisees back in the New Testament that always set up situations where they thought there's no way Jesus is going to be able to escape. Here's the, the woman taken in adultery. Stone her or, or not? Darned if you do, darned if you don't. Uh, here's the... Here's the, what the, the taxation from Caesar. Do we pay or do we not? And darned if you do, darned if you don't. And every time, Jesus just split the middle and somehow escaped unscathed. Well, is Daniel going to be able to do something similar? Well, the king can't think of any escape route but one. And it's the same if-it-be-so escape route that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had held on to. 
in verse 16, when the king commanded and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions, the king spake and said unto Daniel, here's the escape route, thy God whom thou servest continually, even when it's illegal, uh, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's dangerous and all eyes seem to be on you, even in your lit cell in the panopticon, you serve continually. Well, that God will deliver thee. He will deliver thee. How's that for a statement of faith? How's that for an if it be so? Without even the if, he's going to. Daniel, you have so much faith in your God. I can't even help but have faith in your God too. That's amazing. When your confidence is contagious, when your faith begins to spread like fire, and, and people who don't even believe like you do can't help themselves and they start You have faith in your God. I have faith in your faith. In fact, I'm starting to have faith in your God directly. I love this transition. But then what happens? Verse 17 and 18, as Daniel is cast into this lion's den, a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. He he felt required, constrained, coerced to do this. He didn't have a choice in the matter. But then what does he do? What, he, what can he do? The king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Can you picture him again? He was displeased with himself before. Now he's so sickened by what he's done. So sickened with what Daniel is probably happening to him. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't believe the situation I've thrown Daniel into, literally. That was never my intent. God be merciful to him. And that would be being merciful to me. Well, in verse 19, the king arose very early in the morning. Well, go figure, he couldn't sleep anyway. After this sleepless night, it's like, how long can we say that it counted, that we threw him into the lion's den? I mean, does the decree require a length of time? I mean, it wouldn't have to. I'm sure the, the, the person probably barely hit the floor between life, before life was taken. But very early in the morning, the king goes in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice, But he cried unto Daniel. How's that for hope against hope? He's he's believing that there's someone within that he's addressing directly that's still alive to hear him. The king speaks and says to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, your God is alive. I pray that you are too. You've served him faithfully. Will he serve you by delivering you from death? He says, servant of the living God is thy God whom thou servest continually. That phrase keeps coming up. Is he able to deliver thee from the lions? Now that's the wrong able. It was the right able before. He is able to do this. Here he's wondering. I can't blame him. Is he able? He should have asked. Was he allowed Here he's asking, did he have the power? He should have been asking, did he have the permission? But what he's asking basically is, Daniel, what did you get? Did you get the if it be so that I was praying and fasting for? 
or heaven forbid, did you get the but if not? Are you even down there for to hear me? But verse 21, then said Daniel. His voice emerges through the rock. Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouths that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. I've done nothing wrong. Innocency was in me. And so even those that were trying to condemn me, they couldn't. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, lions may roar. But that's the only thing they'll do when their mouths are open because the angel will come and close them. In fact, I could picture Daniel with a twinkle in his eye saying, you know, king, you're not the only one that fasted last night. These lions were fasting as well. The flame shall not hurt me. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's exactly what happened with Daniel. So verse 23, then was the king exceedingly glad for him. Probably relieved for himself as well. He commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him. Just like not a hair singed, not a smell of smoke. And all of this because he believed in his God. How's that for faith? How's that for courage? How's that for strength? In fact, one other thing about this that I, I, I grew up with this story, right? I've seen the veggie tale too, right? Uh, it's one of the most famous stories, uh, old flannel board stories in primary way back when I was a kid. Uh, you love this one. Everybody loves the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But I'd been studying it for oh, 30 plus years before this dawned on me. Daniel was not supposed to come out of the, the den of lions alive. That part I knew, okay? So what was the lion's den for all intents and purposes? Uh, I doubt that servants go down there and clean out the bones, uh, you know, clean up the cage after the lions have had their dinner. Uh, it's just a den of lions. Nobody wants to go down there. It's just where we, we send prisoners that are on death row. Because that's where they die, and essentially that's where they remain. So, basically, what's the lion's den? It's a tomb. It's Daniel's tomb. Now to keep out the lions, or to keep in the lions, I should say, what did they do? They rolled a stone over the mouth of this den. So no one could ever come out. Well, that's so the, the, the lions don't come out. But of course, no person's ever going to come out because that's where they die. Except in this case, when the morning came, and the stone was rolled away from the mouth of this tomb, and one who was supposed to be dead came forth alive. Sound familiar? 
All things are made to bear witness of me, the Lord says. And to see in the story of Daniel and the lion's den, a type and shadow of the resurrection of Jesus, that blew me away when the Spirit just whispered about a stone and a tomb and life snatched out of the jaws, literally in that case, of death. That's real deliverance. Resurrection is the ultimate solution for any den of lions we find ourselves in. And it was brought about because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first fruits of them that slept. The first to emerge from a lion's den. Alive. Now, what about Daniel's enemies? They're shocked. They're horrified. Well, they're, going to be about, they're about to be more horrified than ever. Because verse 24, the king commanded and they brought those men which had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. And since misery loves company, it was them, their children, and their wives. Yes, your wickedness affects more than just you. And the lions had the mastery of them and break all their bones in pieces or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Like I said, they, they barely hit the floor before they were consumed. And can you blame the lions? They were hungry. They'd been fasting after all. Well, when all is said and done, Darius makes a new decree throughout his empire. He'd been had on the first one. Well, he was going to have his way on the second. So verse 25 through 27, Peace be multiplied unto you, all my subjects. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. I mean, Daniel didn't tremble or fear before the lions. So tremble and fear yourselves before his God, for he is the living God. And make sure his servants stay living themselves. He's steadfast forever, just like Daniel was. His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Yes, our extremity is God's opportunity. And because of what Daniel was willing to pass through, the world came to know his God. To know the deliverer, I guess there has to be something you're delivered from. And for Daniel to be willing to stand up for his knowledge of God, it allowed other people to come to know God as well. And so, verse 28, this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Ah, we see some more history passing. And the baton changing hands from the Medes to the Persians, from Darius to Cyrus the Great. Daniel's been living through it all. Again, in here, among Persian rule, you'll see Esther come onto the scene a little later. Uh, here, with Cyrus allowing the Jews to return home, there you'll see Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai. Uh, Daniel has some good company. But to see him there, by now a very old man, having outlived and outlasted a Babylonian captivity. Now, there's a lot of history behind him, but still a lot of history ahead. And just like as a younger man speaking to Nebuchadnezzar about a statue and kingdom after kingdom going from top to bottom, well, now he's going to have 
similar visions and dreams explained. Now for this one, we're going to go out of chronological order. We're kind of jumping around. In some ways, that first six chapters, the first half of Daniel, are all these incredible miracle stories of staying firm even in enemy territory and being delivered as a result. Here in the second half, we will see dream after dream of, and it's apocalyptic in nature. Uh, it's speaking to the last days, just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. This one takes place during the reign of Belshazzar. And so we got to rewind the clock a little bit to see where this comes in, uh, in onto the scene. But chapter 7, verse 1 through 3, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. So he's not just the interpreter this time, and he doesn't have to reveal it. It's being revealed to him. And he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Here it is. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. Now, in some ways, this is a new creation he's describing. Because back in Genesis 1, what happens? God's breath, his spirit, his wind is moving upon the face of the great deep. There's some kind of creation, some kind of order coming out of chaos here. And in this vision, four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from another. So each one's a little different. In fact, each one's very different from any animal we've ever seen. I'm going to fly through this, but the first is a lion that has eagle's wings, and it's going to represent Babylon. We're getting another version of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Instead of head of gold, now we see a lion with eagle wings. There's the Babylonian Empire. What's next? In the statue, it's the chest of silver. But here, it's a bear with ribs sticking out of his mouth, as if he's just finishing a meal. Oh, there's the Persians that have just gobbled up the Babylonians. Next, not the, the, the belly and thighs of brass that you saw in the statue, but rather a leopard with four heads and wings. I mean, again, these are beasts that are far more powerful than anything you could imagine uh, just walking through the, the forest or the jungle. And sure enough, these world superpowers are so much mightier and bigger, mythical in some ways, beyond anything you've seen in little wars between neighboring city-states. This leopard is Greece. So picture Alexander the Great in all of his glory. And then fourth and finally, again, here we see the Roman legs of iron stomping down on anyone that dares get in its way. But this fourth is a beast, dreadful and terrible, are the words used to describe it. It has iron teeth and ten horns. Remember the statue had ten toes? Well, now this beast has ten horns. And think of the Roman Empire in all of its power. And then the aftermath, as these horns extend out from it into the kings uh, or the kingdoms of, of a divided Europe. Now, if you take Revelation chapter 13, I mentioned that John is an expert in the Old Testament. He knows his Ezekiel. Now he knows his Daniel. Listen to what he says at the beginning of Revelation 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea. Remember Daniel's dream. He's seen the winds striving upon the great sea. There's John standing at the seaside. And he saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. 
And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Oh, that was the third beast Daniel saw. And his feet were as the feet of a bear. Oh, that was the second beast that Daniel saw. And his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Oh, that was the first beast that Daniel saw. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. In a way, what John is seeing is, oh, talk about a menagerie of, of menacing beasts. Kind of all coming together and portions of what did we learn from Babylon or what scared us about Persia? Tell me about the, the Greeks and, and then the Romans and bring it all together. And what have we had? We, what do we have this, this combination of all these symbols of a world that is trying to conquer everything in its way? Sound like modern times? And you don't have to get so specific in terms of, well, I wonder what, what world superpower we need to fight. The beauty of the book of Revelation, I'll say this, and I'm really excited for the end of next year when we get to go verse by verse through that incredible book. Uh, I hope we can make it that, that far. But when people too often get so caught up in a, a literal chronology and trying to attach, well, oh, who's the beast and who's the 666 and what this has to represent so-and-so. That has been done for centuries. And people have always seemed to find some villain to peg with the mark of the beast. Now here I admit we're doing some of that with, well, Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. But that's pretty basic, and from our vantage point, and even from the New Testament, you know, John on the Isle of Patmos' vantage point, he could go up to that point, too. But looking to the last days, I'll say this. I read a book once on, it was a reception history of the book of Revelation, a book about how people have treated the book of Revelation for the last 2,000 years. The writer was a skeptic that didn't believe in anything. And he called the book of Revelation a monumental failure because the prophecies never seem to get fulfilled. And yet everybody thinks they're being fulfilled right around them. And I said, that's the point. And that's what you're missing. What you call failed prophecy, I call perpetual relevance. That every disciple in any age can see the eternal conflict of right and wrong, light and darkness, the lamb versus the beast and know that they're caught up in an eternal struggle and they have important eternal decisions to make themselves. What a waste of scripture if it only applied in the moment of its literal fulfillment. God gets way more mileage out of his word than that. And so to create through symbolism a book that is perpetually relevant a book that at every age you can identify a beast in this dog-eat-dog -dog world, in this survival of the fittest social Darwinism. To, it's amazing what Daniel is giving us and what John is giving us, what Ezekiel gave us and, and Isaiah, masterpieces that apply in every age and under every circumstance. And that's what we're seeing here. And so whether it's chapter 7 now or chapter 11 in a moment, this second half of Daniel that is so apocalyptic, last days, end of the world, so symbolic, so difficult to, to pin down or to nail down with absolute clarity, 
many scholars try to do that again with this intertestamental period, assuming that Daniel couldn't possibly have prophesied a thing. And so it's all kind of just backdated and and they'll they'll tag a name for practically every detail. And that's actually really interesting because it does describe some incredible history. Uh, which actually, since I do believe in the gift of prophecy, makes Daniel even more incredibly prophetic than we often give him credit for. I mean, down to the details of things that we'll see in chapter 11, for example. But what I'm trying to say here as we kind of begin this, this apocalyptic section is, are there literal fulfillments in the intertestamental period with the Seleucid kings that are wreaking havoc? I mean, is that a manifestation of a bunch of horns that are coming out of the beast? Yes. But as we already saw with Isaiah, they're all previews of final destructions. And the destruction of Assyria was meant to point us to the destruction of the wicked world of the last day. The destruction of Babylon is meant to point us to the destruction of the wicked of the last days. It's all previews of Armageddon. Gog and Magog, as Ezekiel taught us last week. And so if we're seeing the reign of Antiochus IV uh, during the Seleucid reign over Palestine in the second century BC, all this history that we don't get in the Bible because it happened between the Old and New Testaments. For that, there's all kinds of other material you'll have to read and history you'll have to internalize. But if you don't want to spend your time studying the history of the intertestamental period, just trust that you're living through an echo of it. We talked about Isaiah's layer cake. Well, Daniel's a pretty good baker too. And things that apply to his day as, as kingdoms and superpowers are coming and going apply to what happened with the coming, before the coming of Christ under the reign of the Maccabees, for example. Judah Maccabee, Hanukkah, all that whole time period. It's amazing. Uh, we just don't spend much time in it because it's not in our scripture. Uh, or the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Or the destruction of the wicked world and the battle of Armageddon before the second coming of Jesus Christ. I, I hope some of this made sense. I know that was a long historical diatribe. I apologize. Uh, but I just want you to see the relevance of this on the one hand. But also don't worry if you can't connect names and dates and events to every single thing that you see here. I don't think that's the homework God is assigning us. I think he's asking us to learn to live righteously in the midst of a wicked world. And even when the beasts are on the prowl, turn to the Lamb of God, and he'll see you safely through. In verse 8, as Daniel has seen all of this, the four beasts have paraded before him. I considered the horns, this, this last bit of it all, where these horns are coming forth from this dreadful, terrible beast. That's something that caught his eye. What does this mean? I beheld, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And again, that's where scholars will say, that's got to be Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was one of the worst of the worst during the intertestamental period. In fact, uh, Epiphanes means like, you know, like an epiphany. God is made manifest. That was a nickname he took for himself. How's that for pride? The same pride of Nebuchadnezzar, the pr same pride of the king of Assyria, the same pride of everybody pretty much. 
But Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, uh, God manifest, people made fun of him behind his back, and instead of calling him Epiphanes, they called him Epimedes, which is close enough, but it means madman, basically. So instead of Antiochus the godly, it's Antiochus the absolutely insane. Because what is he thinking bringing an altar of Zeus, the Greek god, and planting it firmly right there at the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem? Are you kidding me? The guy was horrible. He desecrated the sanctuary of God in Jerusalem unlike most of his predecessors. Uh, to the point that it was called an abomination of desolations. We'll see that word several times throughout Daniel. We'll see it again when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. We see it again when we talk about Armageddon in the last days. There will be a, an, a desolation of abominations. Something so intense. That, and it all began historically in this, in this scene with Antiochus IV. But again, what beast hasn't tried to do that? What wicked leader hasn't tried to usurp the throne of God? And so some Latter-day Saint scholars have even suggested, as far as this horn, yeah, don't limit yourself to Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epimedes, I like that better. Don't limit yourself to Rome in the days of Jesus. Don't limit yourself to any of those other prior generations, bad guys, because we've got plenty of ourselves. Chalk it all up to what the Book of Mormon calls the great and abominable church. Chalk it all up to various residents as the great and spacious building keeps changing hands. It's the same basic brain trust that's doing it. So whatever form of worldly wickedness we have to overcome in our day, Whatever horn starts to poke out and try to prod you in the direction of Babylon, avoid it, resist it, push it back, and trust that all will be well ultimately, no matter how hot the flames or fierce the lions. So verse 9 and 10, Daniel's dream goes on. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. See, this is where we're really getting apocalyptic, last days, because here the Ancient of Days, Adam himself, Joseph Smith clarifies who this Ancient of Days is, the oldest ancient we can think of as far as human beings on this earth. The Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. How's that for purity? And the hair of his head like the pure wool, another sign of cleanliness and purity. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. You see why we're calling this apocalyptic? This is the end of times. Again, not just... That's why it's got to be more than just Antiochus IV. Uh, anytime saints are in trouble, as they were in Daniel's day, as they were in John the Beloved's day, prophets tend to become apocalyptic. Because you want to put your eggs in the last day's basket, because that's when we finally win for, what, for once and for all. Remember the kingdom that will never fall away. The, the, the stone that finally fills the earth is a great mountain. 
And so no wonder they are looking to the last days. It sure looks better than what they're seeing all around them. And so as Daniel looks beyond that, the present, beyond the near future, onto the distant future, it applies multiple times, layers on the layer cake, okay? But when he sees the end, he sees Adam. This is section 107 and the great, and section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the, the great final sacrament meeting at Adam on Diamond, when the Ancient of Days comes with 144,000 as he is giving back to God, to Christ, his priesthood keys. And all those who have held keys ever since are the kingdoms of this God, of this world, are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. This is deep stuff. And Daniel is seeing it all unfold in vision. It's the final judgment. Judgment was set. The books are opened. We're at the end here. Next, verse 11 and 12. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. Oh, the horn is speaking here. These great words. Well, here's these flowering falsehoods that are being spread. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. You see, in the meantime, as we're waiting for the Ancient of Days to come, as we're waiting for final judgment to be passed when the books are opened, yes, this, these beasts will stalk the land. Yes, these horns will try to prod people in wrong directions. They will speak falsehoods, but great words, but rest assured the day will come that they'll be slain. There will be beast no more. In fact, the adversary himself will be bound and chained in the bottomless pit for that thousand years. The millennial reign. I look forward to that. Then, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Like I said, there's the great final sacrament meeting. There's Adam on Diamond. There's Adam giving his keys of the kingdom to the Lord himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the second coming. And Daniel's looking forward to it. When he says, one like the Son of Man came, talk about an interesting echo of his three friends in the fiery furnace. But even in the midst of all of that opposition and persecution, they weren't alone. Because the Son of Man came. The Son of God came. And the same will be true of us. As things intensify, as we approach Armageddon, that simply means we're closer than ever to the coming of Christ. Daniel then receives the interpretation of his dream and says in verse 17 and 18, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Just like we walked our way through. Again, some would say that it's Babylon, followed by Media, followed by Persia, followed by Greece. We would suggest that it's Babylon followed by the Medes and the Persians. They really do kind of constitute one super kingdom themselves. Then Greece and then Rome. 
and then it splits off into these horns that, that carry us, and as far as history is concerned, all the way to the restoration. This is where we're really connecting these dots. But these four kings, which shall arise out of the earth, but, he goes on, the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. This is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands rolling forth to fill the earth. This is the stone knocking down the statue. This is the lamb gobbling up the beast. Hmm, quite the lamb, quite the lion. Then in verse 21, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, but only for a time, until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Yes, things will get worse before they get better. But they will get better. The Ancient of Days will come. The Son of God will come. And until then, the flame will not hurt us. It will only refine us. Next in verse 25, that last horn. He shall speak great words against the Most High. He's fighting to the very end. And shall wear out, other uh, translations say oppress. He will oppress the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws. He's going to tweak our holy days, our commandments. He's going to, again, reverse the polarity of virtue. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, what on earth is that? The book of Revelation talks more frequently about time, times, and half a time. And so if time is just one, and then times is more than that because it's plural, so there's two of those, and then half a time. So time is one, times is two, three, half, three and a half. So keep that number in mind. When the scriptures talk about time, times, and half a time, or here, a time, and times, and the dividing of time, here again is this three and a half. Now, symbolically, three and a half is half of seven. And a seven is that number of completeness, totality, perfection, wholeness. So chop that in half. This is the opposite of what we're, what we're looking at. This is a time of, of problems. Three and a half also describes the time period of the famine that Elijah called down when he was first being fed by the ravens and drinking from the brook Cherith. Now, multiplying the meal and the oil for the widow of Zarephath, three and a half becomes a great symbol of famine in the land, including a famine for the word of God. It becomes an amazing symbol of the apostasy. And so how long will this horn have to oppress the saints, to try to wear them out? How long will he spend speaking great words against God? Just the apostasy. There will come a day where that, those swelling words are silenced, a time when the saints of the Most High finally overcome their oppression, times when the apostasy has fully ended and Christ has come to rule and reign. We just have to get through our time and our times and our half a time. He then says in verse 26, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, 
whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You think that was good news for the captives in Babylon? They're about to be able to head home under Cyrus's reign to go rebuild the, the city and the temple of Jerusalem. You think that was good news for the people in John the Revelator's day as Christians are being persecuted? You think that's good news in our day? Knowing that soon enough, the people of the saints of the Most High will be granted the kingdom of God on the earth because we've built the kingdom so that Christ can bring the kingdom. And Zion from below is finally ready to receive Zion from above. I can't wait for the second coming. Well, I can. I have to. But in the meantime, I'm working for it too. I look forward to these, the fulfillment of these glorious promises. And then the chapter ends, verse 28. Hitherto is the end of the matter. That's all we need to know. I mean, we got all the way to the second coming. We're all the way to the millennial reign. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations, that's a great word. I was thinking about this. They much troubled me and my countenance changed in me. I get this quizzical look on my face, but I kept the matter in my heart. Yeah, keep thinking, Daniel. You've got a lot of life ahead of you. We all have a lot of history yet to come. Prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Just keep it in your heart. That describes what Mary did with all of her experiences, that she kept all these things and treasured them in her heart. We should do the same. Especially since there's more dreams a-coming, like the one in chapter 8. Another dream to Daniel. In verse 1, it's the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel after that which appeared unto me at the first. He really is a visionary man, and it's not just interpreting others' visions, it's interpreting his own. So here's another divine message, and in this one, more beasts. It starts with a ram that has two horns. And this one's a pretty good description of a single animal that does represent both the Medes and the Persians. We don't need two different animals for this. Uh, because with a, a, a ram, as Daniel sees it, it has two horns. And one is for Media and the other is for Persia. It even says the second horn was bigger than the first. Yes, the Persians were stronger than the Medes. Uh, but they, they, with this, these horns, this mighty ram is pushing away all the other animals in every direction. Until, that is, a he-goat comes along and defeats the ram. So what, kingdom, what world superpower overcame the Medes and the Persians? Ah, yes, that's Greece. So who's the goat? <laughs> well, yeah, the greatest of all time. Uh, how about Alexander the goat, as in Alexander the Great? Uh, yes, he is the goat, and he defeats the ram. But then the goat is replaced by four notable ones, they're described as, out of which emerges a little horn. And that actually fits perfectly in terms of the intertestamental period. That's when Alexander the Great reigned, between the Old and New Testament. But after his, after his death, his kingdom splits in half. There are well, actually four generals at first, but then it ends up into two notable ones. But here comes this little horn. And that you can see, yes, Antiochus IV is going to fit that bill. In verse 10 and 11, talking more about the horn, it waxed great, even to the host of heaven. This is like Lucifer trying to ascend up on high, trying to usurp the throne of God. That's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes, I'm the Epiphany, thought of himself. 
But it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Remember in John's Revelation, he sees this dragon dragging down a third of the stars of heaven. This is similar. He casts down the host. He brings down the stars. Oh, how you have fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. This is Lucifer trying to replace Jehovah. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Again, that's Lucifer's goal from the get-go. It's what Antiochus IV is going to do in the Temple of Jerusalem. It's what Nebuchadnezzar did to the temple before. It's what the Romans will do to the temple in 70 AD. It's what Lucifer is still trying to accomplish in these last days. He has his sights on the sanctuary as always. And if he can't destroy it, can he keep people from entering it? He'll do all he can on that front as well. Next, verse 13 and 14, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? So, great question, how long? This transgression of desolation hints towards the abomination of desolation. To think about what the people of God and the house of God will go through, the sanctuary being trodden underfoot, that's the question on everybody's mind. How long? And the answer, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, what exactly does he mean by the 2,300 days? Great question. And that's one, we'll see several more numbers like that, that have been... Speaking of cogitations, add that to calculations as people have been trying to make sense of Daniel's numbers ever since they were written and trying to add them up or multiply them by any, turn the days into years and then carry the one and then, and when's the second coming going to be? No man knows the day nor the hour. Can we just leave it at that and leave the calculations to somebody else? But some day after this time, this this desolate sanctuary will be cleansed. That, that's enough to hang your hat on. Apostasy will end in restoration. Wickedness will be eclipsed by righteousness. Then what happens? A messenger named Gabriel, we see him come onto the scene, helps Daniel understand the vision. Maybe he'll help us too. Verse 17 and then jump to 19. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. That's usually our response when angels come. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end, so we're talking end times, apocalyptic, shall be the vision. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. I told you this is a layer cake. Okay? It's not just what's happening in your day or shortly thereafter. It's not just near future, although it'll be like that too. It's distant future. That's why abomination of desolations applies in so many different time periods, okay? But the one Gabriel is trying to help us focus on is the one that we'll probably ultimately live through, okay? The end times, the, the time appointed the end shall be. Gabriel goes on explaining the dream. He says the, the ram is Media and Persia, just like we already walked our way through. The goat is Greece. The four nations come after, the horn. And then he says 24 and 25. His power, the horns, shall be mighty, but not by his own power, 
It's not that he's powerful in and of himself. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart. There's that pride. By peace shall destroy many. There's kind of lulling people away into this carnal security. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. There's his opposition to the Lord and his work. But he shall be broken without hand. How's that for some handwriting on the wall? Finally, 26 and 27, the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Again, pointing us to the latter days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterwards I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Probably not even he fully. There's symbolism with all of its hidden meanings and when does it apply and how long till that fulfillment and maybe the better question, how am I supposed to live in the meantime? What am I supposed to do to navigate what I'm going through? Well, in some ways, chapter 9 provides a beautiful answer to that because it's about repenting. Like President Hinckley said in the aftermath of 9-11, our safety lies in our repentance. Our security lies in keeping the commandments of God. And if we can simply turn to the Lord, then it doesn't matter how, how hot the flames become. He's in the furnace with us. It doesn't matter how many lions are stalking their prey. We're covered by the atonement of Christ. To trust that the Lord is not only coming, but he's already here in some ways protecting and preserving and preparing his people, if we'll repent. I love Daniel 9. We don't spend enough time in it. It's such a beautiful description, though, of how we need to live in enemy territory. Because you can't help but get a little enemy territory on you. It's so hard to escape unscathed. It's impossible. So what do we do? We repent. Look at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, which again, historically isn't accurate. Darius was actually the father of Ahasuerus, who's more commonly known as Xerxes. But he's of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, which is interesting because usually he understood by spirit. But here, Scripture's helping him. He understood by books the number of the years, whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. You see, Daniel himself is wondering how long. And so he turns to Scripture. He sees the book of Jeremiah, and that was clearly prophesied. You'll be in bondage for 70 years. I mean, I'm going to buy some more property here in Israel because I know it's a safe investment in Zion. We're coming back. And here's Daniel on the other end going, well, when will that be? So he turns to the Scriptures, looks things up, and realizes, oh, 70 years. Are we getting close? And he's wondering about this timetable. Verse 3 and 4, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. 
this is just the beginning of, of this prayer, of this petition, of this worship. But it's so beautiful. If you're wondering what worship looks like, read Daniel 9. If you're wondering what confession and prayer and, and broken hearts and contrite spirits look like, look at Daniel chapter 9. And as he's beginning this, I mean, I wonder for Daniel, is it a matter of, have the 70 years come and gone? When exactly did, did Jeremiah start the clock? Because there's these three waves of, of refugees. Uh, there's, and, and conflict was brewing before that. What, wow. I can't know the end date if I don't know for sure the start date. Has the time already passed? Have we not, have we not done our part? Is it going to be longer than 70 years? Do we have to recalibrate because we haven't repented? I don't know. But if I'm wondering if it's too late to, for the blessings of God to come into my life, rather than just sit and stew and look at the clock, I'll repent and make sure that whenever the timetable comes, I'm worthy of receiving those blessings. So that's what he does. Prayer, supplication, fasting, sackcloth, ashes. They're signs of mourning, of repentance, of contrition. He knows who God is. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his mercy to them that love him. And, and we love you, Lord. This whole time in Babylon, I've tried to prove that by the things I would eat and not eat, by the music I would listen to and not listen to, by refusing to bow before false gods because I would only bow before yours, even if it was illegal. Lord, I love you. Please show your love to us. Because, verse 5 and 6, we have sinned. Here comes the confession. And have committed iniquity and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. How's that for a full confession? How's that for contrition, for sackcloth and ashes? And not just all the things they've done wrong. One of the things they haven't done right is listening to the servants God has placed before them. Sound applicable in the last days? Do we have similar things to repent of? In verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. We don't know what we're doing, but we know you do. As at this day, he says, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them. So I'm talking to the entire diaspora, the scattering of Israel, the captivity in Babylon, all of us, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. I mean, here I am confused over Israel's scattered condition, the confusion of our face, but I know thy righteousness so I guess that should solve my question of why are we scattered everywhere? Because we've deserved it. We don't deserve the promised land. We haven't kept our promises. But we trust in thy righteousness. We know it belongs to thee. And so we can ask in confidence, verse 9 and 10, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses. Have you ever heard that word as a plural? I love it. Because our sins definitely are plural. Our repentances should therefore be in the plural. And thankfully God's forgivenesses are in the plural too.
In fact, they're infinite. Though we have rebelled against him, neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. There it is again. So often God points us back to his prophets, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants. It is the same. So listen to my words through them. Verse 12, he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done unto Jerusalem. God did exactly what he promised through his prophets on the judgment side, on the justice side, on the condemnation side. But doesn't that also mean that he will keep his word and do exactly as he promised on the mercies side? on the forgivenesses side? Because prophets have, have promised both. They have set before us life and death and encouraged us to choose life. It's not too late to do that. We can change. Then verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, he's been doing a lot of reading, all this evil has come upon us. I mean, we have been warned after all. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Have we really been that stupid, that stubborn, that we wouldn't repent, we wouldn't turn? No wonder this has happened then. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us, just like his prophets warned. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. It's like it's all beginning to make sense for Daniel. We, we're exactly in the position that the prophets warned that we would be. This should come as no surprise to us. What else did we expect? But what else can I expect? I can expect forgiveness if we'll simply repent. So verse 15 and 16, O now, O Lord our God, that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. Once again, we see this Egypt-Babylon comparison. Both times, enemy territory. Both times, under the, the thumb of a wicked ruler. But both times, we have a deliverer that is promising us a Passover, if we'll come unto him. So, you who freed the, the slaves from Egypt, and has gotten the renown, as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly, O Lord. According to all thy righteousness, not ours, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem. Thy holy mountain, there's the temple again, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. There's Daniel trusting in the Lord's mercy, the power of his deliverance, his righteousness and faithfulness to the end. And therefore he's repenting. In verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. This is a prayer for the temple and a prayer for God's sake, not only for their own. It's thy house, O Lord. And I pray that you will look with mercy upon it. Let your face shine upon the sanctuary. In verse 18 and 19, O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold. Behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. 
For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, another great plural, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not. In other words, please don't wait. For thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. That's one of my favorite verses in this whole chapter. When he says that our supplications before thee, we're not presenting those for our righteousnesses. I'm not trying to heap up all these righteous works and say, hey, don't these cancel out the negative ones? Let's weigh them both in the balance. No, I'm humbly throwing myself at the Savior's feet and humbly asking for mercy. Not some kind of justice, because look at all the good I did. I did not earn my way into forgiveness. It was God's great mercies all the way through. I think sometimes I, I worry that we keep teaching our kids about the steps of repentance as if they were some rote and rigid recipe. And if you just plug in all the numbers and hit enter, then of course, what does it spit out on the other side? Forgiveness. And the R's that we always use for repentance, things like recognition and remorse and restitution, all those are important. But they're nothing without the capital R, Redeemer. And honestly, you can sum up the whole repentance process by coming unto Him. He'll help you recognize your sins. Just by the sheer discrepancy between what you are and what He is. He'll help us feel remorse in the right way. Because it's not us kind of trying to chalk it up and get emotional about how bad we feel. We just see who he is. And our, our view of self changes accordingly. Restitution, we realize we can't make it. We can't offer it. And only the Lord can. And he gives us power to do whatever we can on this earth to try to help those that we've offended. But when all is said and done, what is it that it's not spit out forgiveness on the other end? We've developed a relationship. That's another R for the repentance process. We've established a relationship with the Redeemer, and it's his righteousness. Think about what Lehi says to Jacob, that it is because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer that thou art saved. That's beautiful. Don't work yourself into a frenzy, Jacob, thinking you have to be perfect from the start. Let Christ's perfection lead you along. That's grace. That's patience. That's the Lord's righteousnesses. Not our own. Well, while Daniel is praying, Gabriel returns. And in verse 22 and 23, he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. He had a lot of that all the way back from chapter 1, but it keeps growing within him. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Isn't that beautiful? God forgives, he blesses, he guides because he loves us. Thou art greatly beloved. 
And the way he put it, this was, this one blew me away as I was studying this this week. When he says, at the beginning of thy supplications, the command came to, for me to come on down and bless you with all the things you're looking for. Wait, at the beginning of my supplications? You didn't even wait for me to finish the process? I didn't even get through all the R's. What are you doing coming early? That's how the Lord is. As soon as we begin to repent, immediately doth the plan of salvation begin to work with us instead of against us. The moment the prodigal son came to himself and began the journey home, that wonderful father, scanning the horizon, started to sprint toward his wayward son. At the beginning of thy supplications. The Lord's like, oh, I know where this leads. He's taking the first steps. Gabriel, better go. Meet him halfway. In fact, meet him more than halfway. Get, get all, almost all the way there. Just let him start the process. But then, but then we're going. I love that. Next, verse 24. And again, all because he loves us. For thou art greatly beloved. That's why he does it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. For Christ so loved the world that he gave his life. And if we can love God in the most infinitesimally small degree compared to how he loves us. That's all he's asking. This, this is how it all goes. This, this is repentance. This is how we survive life in enemy territory. We just turn to God and he comes running. We open ourselves to his love and we feel it. Next, what is, Daniel, what, is told, what is Daniel told when Gabriel comes? Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. I know you're wondering about time. Okay, 70 weeks. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Okay, whew, there's a lot of stuff that's got to happen. But 70 more weeks are what we're talking. Now, what's interesting here Forgiveness, wait a minute, I thought Gabriel was sent right when he began to supplicate. Well, yeah. What's interesting about forgiveness, it can happen instantaneously. But sometimes recovery, that's another good R for the repentance list, that one can take a while. When you uh, need a surgery, for example, your life can be spared and saved in an instant with a surgery, for example or some antidote to the poison, or, or pick whatever analogy you want. The forgiveness can happen instantaneously. But often there's still this recovery time of being able to get back on my feet. And I know I'm out of the, I'm out of the woods now, and I'm going to survive this thing, but my legs got to heal. Uh, I, the wounds need to close. I need to have some strength to build some more spiritual momentum again. And so I, I love that the Lord has this time determined to finish the transgression. Sometimes people wonder about that, where if I've come and confessed and, for, and I'm forsaken my sins, why does the bishop sometimes tell me that I still need to wait a while? Why does there sometimes have to be a passage of time before I can get back out on my mission, for example, or begin to partake of the sacrament again, or be rebaptized after after losing my membership? Well, because sometimes... Time is required for the recovery. Just to finish the transgression, you're not paying for it. It's just to make reconciliation for iniquity. It's more to just, again, build up that spiritual strength. I, I think that's a fascinating verse to consider in all of that. It, it shows 
Well, I'll even say this, 70 weeks, again, are we talking literal time? Are we talking some kind of symbol? Because if a week, this, this struck me as I was pondering this this week too. I love studying scripture. Even if you've taught it a million times, new stuff comes every time you turn to it. So this was a new thought for me this, this week. That 70 weeks, a week is seven days. So 70 weeks is seven times 70. Ooh, what does that remind me of? Any stories having to do with forgiveness that talk about seven times 70? Oh yeah, duh. That's how forgiving we need to be, which suggests that that's definitely at least how forgiving the Lord is. And no, I don't think he means 490 and then you're out. It's lose track. Just multiply your forgiveness to perfection, because seven is that whole number. Be completely, wholly, perfectly forgiving. But in this case, when it's seven times 70 to finish the transgression, to, main t to be patient in your penitence, to hold on to your broken heart and maintain your, your contrite spirit that entire time, I wonder about that. Because if you were to attach both, connect both seven times 70s, this is what a part I love that blew me away. If seven times 70 shows how forgiving the Lord is willing to be with us, shouldn't it also reflect how patient we ought to be with him and how penitent we ought to be as we repent? I think too often we only assume, oh yes, God must be infinitely merciful and forgiving, which he is. But am I willing to be equally, infinitely humble and contrite? I'll wait as long as you need me to for recovery to come. I'll get up no matter how many times I fall down. I will wait until I can be forgiven on the Lord's terms, not on mine. And I have no timetable, and I leave no ultimatums. I will repent till 7 times 70. And I know the Lord will forgive me that many times too. Beautiful connection. Next in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. And again, is that seven times seven? Are we talking literal? I don't know. Three score and two weeks? Okay, we're now adding another 62. What are we doing with this? Well, seven plus 62, that's 69. And now are we at seven times 70? I don't know these numbers. But the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Great word, troublous. Well, again, I don't know exactly what to do with all these numbers, but there does seem to be some interval between the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the coming of Messiah the Prince. And do what you want with those numbers, but again, there's going to be some time that passes. Uh, you can think of that in the ancient iteration from the temple of Zerubbabel being built, and then centuries later, Christ comes for the first time. Do we think about it in the last days, uh, the building of temples in our day, the restoration of the gospel, uh, the, the building of Jerusalem, old and new? And then will there be a passage of time before Christ, the Messiah, the Prince, comes for the second time? Either way, there are troublous times in, in the interim. No wonder we need this call to repent. Next, verse 26. After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Is this a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ? The Messiah will be cut off. It's, 
It's not for himself that it's happening, it's for all of us. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, here sounds like the Romans coming to, to level the city of Jerusalem, to destroy the temple stone by stone, just like Jesus prophesied would happen. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. It's going to happen all over again. The desecration of the saint, well, the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, the desecration of the temple by Antiochus IV, the destruction of the temple by the Romans, the attack on faith and virtue and right, the times of Armageddon. The Messiah will come, though. The Messiah will come. Verse 27, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Again, this is this abomination of desolations. The destruction of Jerusalem that we've seen so many times throughout these layers of the layer cake. They're all pointing to the final fulfillment of, of all of this in the last days. And again, far more important than the question of when or how long is the question of how. How will we live when we experience these things? That's what chapter 9 was all about. It is worth reviewing whenever we get a little bit of Babylon on us or in us. Chapter 10 then follows with another apocalyptic vision. The second half of Daniel is full of them. And in this one, fast forward, we had to flash back to see some of these in earlier, earlier reigns. But in verse 1 of chapter 10, it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. Every once in a while it still crops up. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. So no, it hasn't come yet. It's still a ways off in the distance. But that doesn't lessen its reality. And just because we've been waiting for the second coming doesn't mean it's never going to get here. Just because things are long, they are true. So be patient. In verse 2 and 3, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread. Maybe he's got some Ezekiel bread himself. Neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So this is a period of mourning, of fasting, of self-denial, of preparation, you would assume. What's he trying to prepare himself for? Well, communication with God. Because after this period of preparation, look at 5 and 6, Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen. Now, linen is what the priests wore for their priestly garments. So picture someone with spiritual authority. Whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. This is so close to the description of the Lord when Joseph Smith saw him in vision in the Kirtland Temple, Doctrine and Covenant, section 110. This is... Again, the, the, the voice as the sound of mighty, of rushing waters, for example. 
to see the color of, of flame and fire, this purity, lightning, gold, linen, all of this is indicative of, of the Savior. That Daniel here is having a vision of the Lord. I think all of that, those three weeks of, of avoiding pleasant bread, that preparation has paid off. In verse 7, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. It sounds like Paul on the road to Damascus, right? It sounds like Philo Dibble when Joseph and Sidney are seeing the visions of the degrees of glory. Something's going on here, but I'm not party to it. Therefore, I was left alone, Daniel says, and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. That is a fascinating phrase. My comeliness was turned into corruption? You understand what he's going through? He probably thought he was a pretty okay guy. I mean, not in a prideful way, but, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to. I was, I mean, even the Babylonians saw my potential and dragged me over here. Uh, I was cunning in wisdom, and I could learn the language, but I was pure and virtuous the whole time through. I was tr I'm trying to do what I should. And yes, we collectively have sinned, and I'm trying to repent collectively of all of that. But I, I, I'm trying. And there's a certain comeliness, a certain sense of self and confidence and worthiness that goes along with that. Until you measure yourself up against the perfect standard of the Savior himself. Remember uh, Ether 12, if men will come unto me, I will show them their weakness. Because the closer you get, the further you find yourself uh, as far as measuring up to perfection personified. He's not doing that to shame us. He's doing that to lift our sights far beyond any level of contentment with where we happen to be. Because it's eternal progression that we're after. It's eternal progression that he's after for us. And so this goes back to what I've said before, that it's when people feel like others who have left the church or, or kind of lived uh, wicked lives, and then they repent, they have so much to be forgiven for that they end up really, really loving the Lord. And some good kids, quote-unquote, feel like maybe I should sin so that when I repent, I have more to be forgiven and I'll end up loving the Lord more. Jesus teaches a parable about this, by the way, uh, in the New Testament. It's, but it's interesting to think that's a dangerous approach to if you want to love the Lord more. I would prefer Daniel's approach. Rather than dig yourself deeper into the pit, simply raise the Lord's pedestal. You can keep doing that forever and it'll never get to its proper height. But as Daniel comes to understand the Lord more intimately, sees him here personally in vision, then no wonder his little light is eclipsed by the light of the world. No wonder his relative comeliness ends up looking more like corruption. Not in a wicked way, just in a, well, good, better, best. And my good can still get better. And my better can still get best. And the Lord will still remain above me. No wonder I want eternal progression. 
it's the parent or the grandparent that always stays as close to the toddler as they need to catch them when they stumble, but are constantly backpedaling slowly, slowly. So the toddler learns to walk. The Lord's trying to do that with all of us. I love that phrase. I, I want to just commit it to memory. Comeliness versus corruption. And what I thought of myself, I'm not as good as I think because now I know Christ. I've got a long way to go. Next, verse 9 through 11. Yet heard I the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face. And my face toward the ground. Here is absolute humility, prostration. But then what? And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hand. So there he is kneeling, but he's got his hands on the ground as well. But he's above where he was before. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent, and when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Now, slowly go through those verses, and what do you see him doing? He goes from absolute flat on the floor, to up on his knees, to up on his feet. This is exactly what coming into Christ looks like. Humbling ourselves, knowing we are absolutely nothing compared to him, which thing we never had supposed. But the Lord doesn't leave us there. He lifts us to our knees as we humbly bow before him. He lifts us to our feet and we stand. Now we stand trembling, but that even that is still too low. The Lord wants us to soar on eagle's wings. He wants us to join him upon his heavenly throne and to watch what he's, as he's working with Daniel to get, to build this kind of momentum. It's breathtaking. Then in verse 12, then said he unto me, fear not. It's okay, Daniel. For from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. I am here because you wanted me here. And just like we saw before, that the moment you began your supplication, the Lord sent Gabriel to go start the process. Here the Lord is saying something similar. From the first day. Way back in chapter 1, when you purposed in your heart not to lower your standards. In fact, that was probably before chapter 1, when you were back in Jerusalem. Back at a temple that had not yet been destroyed. Doing your best to live like Jeremiah was, and Ezekiel was, and Lehi was. Trying to do what was right. And from that first day, I've been hearing you. I've been loving you. There's such a relationship in these, in these chapters. Daniel is told over and over. We, we get that in the baptism of Jesus or in the first vision. Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's beloved. I love him. I'm pleased with him. I hear him. Well, hear Daniel. You're beloved too. We all are. Next in verse 14 through 15. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. I mean, we've seen Gabriel. Might as well throw Michael into the mix as well. And it seems here that God has to kind of jumpstart Cyrus in his role of deliverer. 
that he's withstanding, I mean, he's the king of Persia, right? And he's withstanding God for this one in 20 days. It takes three weeks to finally kick in and Michael, the archangel himself, applying a little pressure. Jeremiah said it'd be 70 years. Uh, Isaiah prophesied of you as the great deliverer. Come on, Cyrus, live up to your, your role. And next he says, now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. So here's yet another apocalyptic vision for the end times. Okay, what, thy, what will befall thy people in the latter days. So we're, uh, while I'm working on Cyrus over here with Michael, I'm still talking to you about how long and what will the last days be like. And here's, here's this vision of the end. In verse 15 through 17, when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground. And I became dumb. I mean, seeing the Lord, yeah, that'll leave you speechless. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. I sound like Isaiah's call. Oh, I can't do this. I'm a man of unclean lips among the pe a people of unclean lips. Well, I can take care of that. Here's a coal from off the altar. Can I really do this? Can I prepare my people to navigate these days of wickedness? Well, just hold still. I'll touch your lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? I mean, he can't even mention that it's me and that it's God. It's like, I'm the servant of the Lord, and here I am speaking to the Lord. It's just, I, I'm not worthy of this. For as for me, straightway there remain no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Again, my comeliness has turned to corruption. I, up to this point, he seems to be doing just fine, interpreting dreams and dissolving doubts and speaking incredible words of wisdom. But now I know the glory of God. Now I know the Lord in far more personal ways. And how can I, how can I measure up? to the Messiah. How can I do? I, I'm, again, speechless. I've, I've met the word and I have no words to describe him. But what's amazing about this is, yes, he's struck dumb, but then his mouth is touched. And what happens? Yes, his sorrows have turned upon him. So I, I, how can I do this? How can I be speaking to you? And, but when it says no more strength, no more breath, in a way, that's a good thing because, yes, let's close your mouth on your words and then reopen them so you can utter mine. Let's eliminate the strength in your arm of flesh so you'll begin more fully relying upon the strength that I can give you. Let's take away your breath so I can breathe back into you the breath of life. Daniel, you've been a good good servant, but come to truly meet the master and become like him. Let me empty you of yourself and then refill you with a portion of myself. That's having his image in our countenance. That's taking on the mind of Christ. That is being born of him, becoming his sons and daughters. It's becoming new. Then verse 18 and 19, Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me, 
and said, O man, greatly beloved. That's the third time Daniel's been reassured. God loves you. So fear not. Peace be unto thee. Be strong. Yea, be strong. Stronger than you've ever been. Stronger with the strength of God flowing into you. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Here is Daniel in his own way being, well, we use the phrase, to be endowed with power from on high. You get a sense in that passage that something similar is happening? He's loved. Don't fear. Let peace come. Be strong. Be strong. And here's the strength to make it, to make it happen. To be strengthened by the Lord. Verse 20 and 21 then. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. I've got to go back and whip him into shape. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with thee in these things, but Michael your prince. Michael is on my side. Will you be? As kingdoms come and kingdoms go, an hour of pomp, an hour of show. We pass from Babylon to Persia, from Persia to Greece. Hold on, Daniel. The day will come where Michael will be working not just against the Persians. He'll be working on us all. He will be gathering, mustering the troops. Section 88 talks about this, where Michael, the archangel, will come in preparation for the coming of Christ. This is the book of Revelation. This is the Ancient of Days preparing for final sacrament meeting. It's amazing this is all happening, which then prepares us for chapter 11. Oh, second to last chapter of this book. It's a long one. It is very uh, complicated, detailed, as far as prophecy is concerned. And yes, much of it will be fulfilled down to the letter in the intertestamental period, if we really know the history of the Seleucids, okay? their conquest or their control of, of Palestine. But this one, from a more general perspective, from a more relevant or applicable last days and perpetual relevance perspective, this one is about wickedness in the last days. And we're going to need to get through it if we hope to get to the other side. So, a heavenly messenger, the previous chapter described as one like the appearance of a man. So this is not the Lord speaking. This is probably Gabriel, if I had to pick. He continues speaking to Daniel, prophesying which, that which was to come. And again, this is part of that Daniel layer cake that allows for multiple fulfillments. From the first coming of Christ, as well as the second coming of Christ, if it's, if it's leading up to it, then we've got this abomination of desolations. We have a wicked world. It's going to come to an end, though, and the Messiah will appear. I mean, if you look at the chapter heading, it says, Daniel sees the successive kings and their wars, leagues, and conflicts that lead up to the second coming of Christ. And that's true, but he does it by describing all the things that will happen before the first coming of Christ in that intertestamental period. So the, he prophesies of various kings of Persia. He talks about the defeat of the Persians by the Greeks. A division within the Greek Empire then goes north and south, and that fits the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. All this, again, tons of history from the intertestamental period. Verse 21, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person. And that would be Antiochus IV Epiphanes to a T. To whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom. 
but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now that sounds a lot like wicked Babylon in our day. You kind of slowly insinuate yourself in, uh, which again goes far beyond just the literal fulfillment in the second century BC. So we'll see more of the desecration of the temple, uh, the Maccabean revolt, Hanukkah, all that happens right around this time period uh, because of what Antiochus does. Then verse 30 and 31, he will have indignation against the Holy Covenant. That's what he's really ticked off about. I, we've got to keep people from keeping their promises with God. So indignant over the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. That same phrase comes up. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. There again is the abomination of desolations, the pollution of the sanctuary of strength. Insiders that ought to be clean and worthy are desecrating. It pains me whenever I hear of people that have entered the temple unworthily just to try to shine a light on the sacred to make it look unsacred. It's... Well, I won't say what I really feel about it. But to, to understand what we're up against here, those that are indignant about the Holy Covenant, those that have intelligence with those that forsake the Holy Covenant, talk about last days, talk about incredibly specific fulfillment. Those that have intelligence, those that once were on the inside and now are on the outside, but are trying to take down what once they loved what once they believed. And honestly, the hardest, the most effective attacks on the church come from those that used to belong to it. Joseph Smith said the same thing in his day. He said, well, I could live forever if it weren't for a right-hand Brutus, he said. To understand what we're up against in these days, yes, there will be those who know the Holy Covenant inside and out. They have intelligence of it. But they've forsaken that covenant and now feel indignant about it and, do will, and will do whatever they can to tear it down. There is some abomination and desolation in that as well. Verse 32, he then says, Such as do wickedly against the covenant, that's our focal point, shall he corrupt by flatteries, for the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. I have no idea what that means. To do exploits? Well, I know that, I mean, the generalities. They're going to do amazing things. Marvelous works and wonders. Miracles. Exploits. And to see the faithful that are doing exactly that. I love it. If you know the Lord, you'll be strong. That's what God kept telling Daniel in the last passage. Be strong, be strong. I'll strengthen you. You'll be endowed with power from on high. In that same sanctuary of strength that other people are polluting, it will, it will prepare you. It will purify you. It will be your own fiery furnace and your own lion's den. And you will come out having come to know God in the process. It's amazing the promises here. Verse 33, he then says, And they that understand among the people, 
And hopefully that applies to us. Do we get it? Do we understand the kind of life we should be living, the timetable of it all? Those that understand shall instruct many. Once you've learned, go and teach. Once you've been warned, then warn your neighbor. Instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, by spoil, many days. Yes, the faithful will be called upon to endure difficult days. But, notice what he says next. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help. We don't use the word holpen anymore. We use the word helped. But even when we fall, even when we struggle, we'll be helped. <laughs> with, in fact, with more than a little help. We'll get a lot of it. Now, many shall cleave to them with flatteries. It's the hard part, especially among those who have intelligence of the covenant. They, all, they know all the right things to say. They'll be flattering them, trying to keep them away from God. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. That's still part of our refiner's fire, too. And for all too many of us, we know some of those of understanding who have fallen. That is, that's the shaking of faith. That's the earthquakes in diverse places. People you never thought would be shaken, and yet they've shaken and fallen away. And it's painful. But that is part of our purging, part of our purifying, part of our trial of faith that we might be made white in the blood of the Lamb. That even our faith can be purified and refined. There must be opposition in all things. There must be the deception of even the elect according to the covenant, as Joseph Smith Matthew tells us in Matthew 24. These are the signs of the times. These are the last days. And as the end of Daniel 11 explains it, it's such a powerful description of what we're seeing all around us with, with those of understanding falling. We can't, be, we can't be them, but we can help them. We can help them with a little help and have faith that the Lord will provide the rest of the help, of the help that they need. The rest of the chapter then prophesies of Antiochus or any of his other manifestations, his reach for power, his ultimate downfall. And yes, that will be the, the downfall of Babylon at the end of our days as well, which leaves us left, which leaves us only with chapter 12. And this, again, is the fulfillment. This is the last days. We've passed through our days of wickedness. And what do we have left? Short chapter, but so full of fulfillments yet to come. Verse 1, At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, troublous times like we saw before, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. 
Michael's coming. Yes, this is section 88. Yes, this is book of Revelation. Yes, this is Matthew 24. This is Joseph Smith Matthew. This is DNC 29 and 43 and 45 and all these incredible sections that describe the second coming of Christ. The timeline uh, that we're somewhere traversing as we get closer and closer to this fulfillment. A day of trouble? Yeah. But a day of deliverance? Yes on that as well. Next, verse 2 and 3. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Is that sleeping spiritually and they are finally aroused to attention? Is that sleeping physically and now they're awaking to resurrection? All of the above. In the case of the resurrection, it will be some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. This is the judgment. This is the resurrection of the just and the unjust that we see explained throughout scripture. But what a promise. If we are simply wise, wise virgins, as opposed to the foolish ones, then we will shine. That's the light in our vessel. There's the oil in our lamp. They will turn many to righteousness. That gives me hope for those who know the covenant and have fallen. There's hope for all of them. In verse 4, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So that, it's good enough for now. Okay? Others in later time periods will write more. Nephi will. And at some point he's told, shut the book, I'm going to give more to John. John is given more, uh, but at, at the end he shuts his book. Joseph Smith is given so much. We have it running throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. There are so many that have increased our knowledge of these final days. In verse 5 and 6 he then says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? They can't get over that question, right? And I can't blame them, neither can we. We're always wondering, uh, how soon? How, how much long time, more time do we have? It's, it's, I think it's the procrastinators in us uh, that just want to, I want to know the deadline so I know how long I can wait before I have to prepare last minute. I mean, how am I going to get anything done at the last minute if I don't know when the last minute is? Well, that's part of the purpose, and we'll see that in just a second. But what I love about this verse, it's such a great visual aid for the passage of time, because it's a river, right? What do they say? You can never stand in the same river twice because it's flowing? I've heard some say even more accurately, you can't even stand in the same river once because the river isn't stationary. It's just moving all around you. It's never the same. It's the passage of time. And this man in linen is standing on the water. Here I am kind of walking on water, the master of time, eternal one himself. And yet there's these other two, and one's on the far side of the river, and one's on the near side. How's that for the passage of time? Now and then, present future, or near future, distant future. I, I, I've got to cross the river, don't I? When will these things be? And the answer, verse 7, I heard the man clothed in linen. He's the timeless one that's on the river itself, which was upon the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven. So there he is, stretching them heavenward, and he swear by him that liveth forever, 
So he's serious about giving us an answer to our question. How long? Here it is. That it shall be for a time, times, and then half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. There it is. Your answer. How long? How much time? Oh, great question. Time, times, and half a time. There's your three and a half again. There's your half of the perfect seven. There's your famine in the days of Elijah. There's what we keep seeing over and over with this apostasy, uh, apostasy symbolism. After that, that's the time it's going to require to scatter the power of my holy people. The scattering is part of the plan too. Only then to be reversed with the gathering. Apostasy was part just like restoration. But after that time, times and half a time, then it will all come back. Now, the irony of this as confusing as that is to us, it's nice to know that, or comforting at least, misery loves company, that it was confusing to Daniel as well. In some ways I get a kick out of the next verse, because in verse 8, right after the Lord has said, oh, how much time? You want to know how much time you've got? Oh, you've got plenty of time. In fact, you've got time, times, and half a time. In fact, take, a time, take your time. Time for anyone. It's like, wait, what are, you, what are you talking about? And, and he says in verse 8 and 9, I heard, but I understood not. And I'm like, yeah, you think? Uh, I get such a, a laugh out of this where, I, okay, I, you, I think you answered my question, but I'm still as confused as before. What do you mean by that? Then said I, oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Which again, is this hilarious? Like, Daniel, I'm not going to tell you. No man knows the day nor the hour. I like it that way. Because if you knew the day, you'd wait till the day before. If you knew the hour, you'd wait for the very last moment in it. Instead, if I leave it open-ended, if I say you've got time, but not a ton, and it might be time, it might be times, it might be half a time, how much time do you need? Uh, start now. And don't procrastinate the day of your repentance. In some ways, I almost sense a sense of humor here on the part of God. Almost like he's playing with the language and trying on purpose to be confusing, where he's giving an answer, but it doesn't really help. And so Daniel's like, I still don't get it. Exactly. Quit asking me. That's what he said, right? These are the words, and they're closed and they're sealed. So Daniel, go thy way. You know what you should be doing in the meantime. Keep up the repentance. Keep up the righteousness. Keep coming unto Christ. That's all you need. Uh, Daniel, by the way, isn't the only one that went through that. Almost exactly parallel was an experience of Joseph Smith. In section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants, he's wondering about the second coming. Yeah, it's on his mind. Uh, William Miller is teaching at the same time based on a lot of math he was doing in the book of Daniel trying to figure out the number system, and if that one, each one represents a year, then this, and what's the first time, and then what will be the end time? He's like, bingo, 1844. It's, that, it's then. I mean, no, no other man knows the day nor the hour, but now I know at least the year, and I'm, I'm zeroing in on the date. It went like wildfire through, through early America, uh, where 
so many people were selling farms and gathering to fields and it's like Millerite, the Millerism wasn't its own church, but it affected people of all different churches as they're all getting really hyped up on second coming millenarianism. And it's like, he's coming any moment. In fact, now we know the day or we at least know the year, 1844. And Joseph was wondering about that. So he's like, is that, you didn't tell William Miller and not tell me, right? So he asks the Lord, and here's the response. It's hilarious once you have the eyes to see the humor. Section 130, verse 15 and 16, the Lord responds, Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore let this suffice, and trouble me no more on this matter. But Joseph responds, I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium or to some previous appearing, or whether I should die and thus see his face? <laughs> to me, it's like Joseph's like, wait, you, you give me the answer. It's like, when are you going to come? Oh, well, you'll see me by when you turn, when you turn 85. And Joseph's like, wait, does that mean you're coming in 1890? Or does that mean I'm dying before I turn 85? You coming to me or am I coming to you? How, how are we seeing this? And the Lord basically responds, with a shrug of his shoulders and a little smirk probably and saying, Joseph, trouble me no more concerning the matter. This is enough. I'm not telling you. It short circuits the system. There has to be a set of contraries where there are signs of the times telling you roughly when so you prepare. But also and no man knows the day nor the hour. So you start preparing early. Daniel, go and do thou likewise. God wants us to be ready, but he wants us to permanently prepare. Start now. Well, God won't tell Daniel the specific timing. Sorry. So what should he and we do in the meantime? Verse 10. Many shall be purified and made white and tried. There's the refiner's fire. But the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. What kind of advice do we see there? Be patient, be wise, be righteous, be clean in the midst of wickedness, be good, even here in enemy territory. The chapter then comes to its close with a few final verses. First two are confusing. <laughs> Verse 11, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there again is the abomination of desolations, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth, and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. Wait, 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 you just said one thousand two hundred and ninety, and then you quickly rethink in one thousand three hundred and thirty-five? I mean... I feel bad for William Miller, because when 1844 came and went, and it, Christ didn't come, and he kind of re-scrambled and checked his numbers, and with stuff like that, no wonder it's confusing. He's like, oops, sorry, I forgot to carry the one. I think it's 1845. It's, they called it the Great Disappointment, and it was. I, the Lord doesn't want us to be disappointed as we wait for the second coming, so what should we be doing no matter how many days there are till he comes? Again, be wise, be patient, have faith. And maybe that ambiguity, that confusion, that wiggle room between the numbers and the lengths of times, maybe that's a chance for us to prove some contraries, 
and strive towards a better balance between now and later, or between zeal and patience. So we can just trust that God will come whenever he chooses. Would to God that it might be in my day, but be it sooner or later in it, I shall rejoice. If I'm prepared, that is. So how does Daniel end his book? With these simple words from verse 13. Go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. You know, I'm just simple enough to believe that it might be just that simple. <laughs> just what Daniel says at the end of his glorious book. Go thy way till the end be. In fact, don't just go thy way. Go his way. It's the better way. He is the way, after all, and the truth and the life. When the promises that thou shalt rest, yes, it'll happen in the end, but we can even have it in the, in the meantime. We can rest assured that all will be well. We can rest in him. We can seek his divine rest, which is the fullness of his glory, and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. We don't have to wait that long. We can stand right now. We can stand even when everyone else is bowing before that 90-foot statue glistening in the sun. We can stand. Actually, we can kneel when everyone else refuses to do so. We can be valiant and faithful, even in the midst of Babylon. That's the message of Daniel. It's the example of Daniel, and of Hananiah, and of Azariah, and of Mishael, and of Esther, and of Joseph of Egypt, and of so many people in the Old Testament that stood up and stood out and did what God had asked of them, even if it seemed like no one else was going to. I testify of the valiance that God is willing to breathe into us if we'll turn to him. I testify of spiritual strength that comes from a sanctuary of strength if we'll hold to the covenants we've made with God. I testify of his righteousnesses that far surpass our own and of his forgivenesses that will come every time we repent. My friends, may we be unshaken and unshakable. May we set examples to those around us and gather them home. May we trust in the Lord's timing, whatever that timing may be, and may we be faithful in enemy territory. That is what God has sent us into Babylon to be.